gosh, I, I forgot I even had that in my pack. Yeah, that's the craziest part, man. I, if Joe flicked my ear, I'd probably conk him in the forehead. What's up, everyone? Uh, welcome to Kafaro Cast. I'm riding. Well, I'm not solo today. I have uh, Mackenzie uh, with me on here. Mackenzie is our marketing director. Say hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and then uh, I've got uh, yeah, actually someone I didn't really expect to ever get on the podcast until probably the last year and a half where I learned he'd hunted, uh, which is uh, Brandon Lilly. Uh, Brandon, thanks for coming on, man. Well, man, thanks for having me. And, and like I said before, just uh, I really appreciate and it was pretty awesome when the message came through that uh, that you were paying attention to what I was doing. So, you know, thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, no problem. It was funny. Actually, JP, because uh, I had known you in the powerlifting world when I was pretending to be, you know, a strong man myself. And your name had come <laughs> up because around 08, 09 is when I really got into it um, or, or tried. Yeah. And JP probably, I don't know, a few months, a year ago was like, uh, he's like, do you know Brandon Lilly? And I'm like, yeah, why? And I didn't really knew you hunted. Um, yeah. And. And so he's like, yeah, he had it down here. He, he, well, he follows you guys, watches what you do. And I'm like, no shit. Cause when I had seen you, you were so fucking big. I, it would have been like back when I was big trying to climb up a mountain. You, you've trimmed down, uh, quite a bit, but you know, tell everybody, I guess before I'm confusing everyone, tell a little bit, a little bit, uh, everybody a little bit about your history. Um, you know, the powerlifting, the strongman stuff and, and what you're doing now. So really, uh, always kind of been an athlete. Uh, I don't want to oversell it as like I was a standout. I was just the kid. The one thing I will sell myself on is, is I've always gotten my hundred percent award or the most dedicated award or like the after hours award. Um, that was one thing that my dad always told me. He said, one thing that's a difference maker is, is hard work and consistency. And really the, the, the quote, the quote or the phrase that I like is work. Don't whine. And my dad said, if you can fix it, work on it. If you can't, don't whine about it. And, uh, you know, that, that really defined me as an athlete. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm 6'2". I was naturally about, you know, 185 or so in high school. And uh, I was 5'11". When I graduated, I grew three inches over the next four years in college through shot and uh, through the hammer. And, and that really privied me to a weightlifting program. Uh, I was doing a little bit of lifting before college, but they needed a big, strong guy. And, and I had that naturally. And uh, started competing a little bit in powerlifting. Did really well right from the jump. Um, 19 years old, my first meet was a 660 squat, 440 bench, and uh, 670 deadlift at like 220. So those are you know, good that, numbers. That good of, numbers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. So, so that was like uh, I was kind of bitten by the bug at that point. And uh, you know, life kicked in. Graduated school. Still kept training. Uh, got a job. Had a kid. Got married you know, living the American dream and, uh, got swept up in the 08 reconfiguring of GM. I was working in the car business and lost my job and really kind of lost my way. Uh, I'm a very purpose driven person and my job, my family providing and all that was, was really the definition of who I was. And some people kind of shit on that mentality, but dude, I was handling myself, you know, I was paying my bills and I was, I was living a pretty good life. So, when 08 hit, you know, I was a product of the American dream, brand new house, brand new baby, brand new cars in the driveway and, and making a pretty good living down to absolutely no living whatsoever. 
of that, I kind of hid some things. I didn't tell my family that I'd lost my job. I was trying to hustle around because, you know, my dad always emphasized to me that the person that was specifically a man that, that didn't hold a job was just a piece of shit, you know, and, you know, I was kind of embarrassed the fact that even though I was performance-based good enough to, to make the cut, I was a young guy on the totem pole and uh, just lost my job. And uh, that led me to, you know, splitting firewood, detailing cars, doing everything I could to put the same amount of money in the bank account every month so it didn't disrupt anything. But I was always a little bit short, uh, got on the wrong side of the fence a little bit, started running with some, some tough, tough outlaw types and uh, started selling drugs and doing everything I could just to, just to get forward. And um, really, through all of that, I was trying to find my way. And Louis Simmons gave me a phone call and I was like, hey, man, why don't you come up to Westside and see if you're a fit? think you're a pretty good lifter and we'll give you a shot. So four days a week, I was leaving 2 o'clock in the morning, getting to Columbus around 5, sleeping from 5 to 6, meeting Louis for breakfast, training at 8, getting done by 10, eating lunch at Subway and driving back home to work a shitty job in the afternoon. Um, and I did that four days a week for about four and a half months, well, three to four days a week for about four and a half months until I finally just moved up to Columbus. And in that move, um, my marriage dissolved. Uh, my relationship with my family pretty much dissolved down to zero. And and that was just my fault. You know, it was, it was the fact that I hid things that I should have been honest about and I did things that I shouldn't have done. But, um, you know, it, it also put a weight on my shoulder of like, prove it to them. Like, prove you're not crazy. Prove you're not wrong. You know, and every time that I lifted, it had a little bit deeper purpose because I was trying to prove to these people that, that I wasn't just a complete fuck up, you know. And um, what ended up happening is that that drive actually distanced me further from those people and pulled me full, further into the powerlifting world. And, you know, like I got 362 days in at Westside and Louis pulled me aside and he was like, man, you're just distracted. You're a distraction to yourself. You're a distraction to the team. Um, go, go get yourself figured out. And, you know, if you get righted, the door will be open. And, you know, I'm the kind of person that, that was really looking for somebody to believe in me. And, uh, so Louie kind of became enemy number one, you know, it's like the person that I believed in stopped believing in me. So ended up training across town at Lexington with Chuck Vogelpohl and Danny Dague let me in over there. And, uh, Columbus was just a really tough place for me to live because like I said, my life was, was chaotic and I just wasn't dealing with the things that I should have, but I was, I really became a better lifter through all of that. And I'm not trying to glamorize it. I would have done things different, differently if I could, but really just went on a tear in powerlifting, uh, started winning just about any competition I entered. I don't want to, again, make myself sound better than, than I am, but I had a really good run there and, and won some shows, um, hit a 2,612 pound total in multiply gear, which that is the, that's, that's kind of like I tell people if they don't know powerlifting, you know, stock car would be like taking a car straight out of the, the, the car lot and going to the drag strip and running it down the strip. Well, multiply powerlifting is like a, a funny car or a top fuel dragster. You know, anything goes, no limits, no, no boundaries. As much as you can lift, that's the only goal. So I did 2612 in there via 1008 squat at 837 bench press or 832 bench press. And, uh, my best deadlift was 840. Um, and then I, I kind of got, you know, same kind of trajectory that I have in hunting. I really 
when I benched the 832, it was actually the easiest bench press I'd ever done because the shirts, the, the powerlifting bench shirts, had just kind of gotten out of hand. Uh, and, and at least in my opinion, I, I enjoyed hey, it and I was look, good at it. Brandon, but I wanted to test myself. Before you go, go on, ahead. explain just so it, people don't get confused, and we'll touch on this more. People not listening probably aren't going to know what like a a bench shirt is. So, kind of explain real quick as far as uh, like what what you would call clean and and, and with a shirt because my bench press goes up significantly with a shirt and I look really strong. You want to kind of talk about that real quick? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I was re- I was raw benching right around five forty, five fifty, and uh, the original intention of the shirts you know, at least at some level, was increased safety for the lifters. They had a single-ply, kind of a polyester material. If you benched 500, you might get 525. If you were really good, you might get 550. So like a 5 to 10% carryover because of these shirts being so tight and being so supportive, you would just get a little bit more out of the lift. And then, you know, once that happened, somebody was like, well, if I make the shirt a little bit smaller and I curve the sleeves this direction and I – pull the chest down just a little bit, I can get 565 out of it. So once somebody started figuring out how to manipulate those first level shirts, the race was on and, uh, one ply became two ply, um, open back or closed back shirts became open back shirts, manipulations as far as the, the collar and everything just kind of became the norm and the expectation really. And I was the first wave of lifter that was into the triple ply shirt um i was using three layers of this really really dense polyester and if you can imagine what you're trying to do is, is put as much weight in your hand so that 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 material tensions and then at the bottom it's just it's an insane amount of pressure insane amount of tension and uh but whenever you reverse it you get that assistance off the chest and it, it sounds it sounds like cheating but you're only competing against people wearing the same or comparable gear um So, like I said, you know, to compare it to drag cars, this would be like the top fuel level. Anything goes. As many modifications as you can make to the shirt were fine. I mean, they had certain restrictions, but, you know, it was pretty much the Wild West. If you could do it and lift it successfully, it was a good lift. Same for the squat suits. Um, They just advanced in the same nature. So, I was really kind of at the extreme end of the sport and and doing really well there. But, like I said, when I benched 832 – I'd actually taken 821 on the previous attempt and could not get the shirt down to my chest. Uh, and it, it did not lift the weight for me. I assure you, anybody that is listening to this that thinks, oh, it lifts for you, it doesn't. You still have to have a certain level of mastery and you still have to be able to hold 800 plus pounds over your face and over your chest successfully. But 821 wouldn't touch my chest. I, I needed more. And credit to, the, to this guy named Dennis. He ran over to me and he was like, man, 832 will touch and you're strong as fuck. Like, you'll be able to hit it. So the next attempt, this is at the Arnold Classic, uh, I take 832, it touches perfectly, and it literally went so fast, I thought the spotters took it from my hand. And uh, I got the good, I got the white lights and the, and, uh, the good lift, and I was just kind of in my head, I still had the deadlift, but that was, like, coming off the stage, it was almost a disappointment through achievement. You know, it was, it was almost too easy. So I decided after that I was going to stick primarily to raw, which is just as you are, you know, you, there's, there's variations to that too. There's, there's full raw or hundred percent raw, which is no wrist straps, no knee sleeves, no belt, no anything. And that's primarily how I trained. Um, but I also competed with a belt and knee wraps. And then I also competed belt and knee sleeves and ended up, uh, with a top 
at the time, and it was like a number number twelve total all time at multiply, and ended up going over and and being one of the the number one rank lifters based on weight in my division. And uh, you know, I, I kind of just wanted to be a full spectrum guy. If you wanted to go multiply, I could beat you there. If you wanted to go raw, I could beat you there. So I traveled the world. Um, my lowest my lowest successful completion of a meet finish, I think, was fourth place. Uh, tons of seconds and firsts, but you know, it really became my life in a way that, you know, I'm obsessive. I, I go deep into everything. When I, when I bought a motorcycle, I immediately started losing weight and getting uh, racing leathers and knee pucks so I could learn to drag. It's just, I'm an invested person in whatever I'm about. And, you know, when, when powerlifting kind of caught the bug or I caught that bug, it was over. You know, I just, I went full bore into it and fell in love with it. And, literally on the heels of winning uh, two world-level championships in Australia in August and October of uh, 2014, I kind of was like, man, I really made it, quote-unquote, I've I've made it. So I hung around in Australia for a couple of weeks after the second championship, went all over Australia, met amazing people, stopped back in Mexico, kind of partied my ass off as a celebration, and then started getting some pressure to do a competition in, in January of 14. Um, and I really didn't want to do it. I was under trained for it. And I really just said no over and over and over again. And then this, this friend of mine, uh, he wasn't my friend at the time, but he was an up and coming lifter. And he told the meat rotor, he said, Hey, this kid thinks he can beat you. And I was like, well, he's going to have to beat me to do it. So, uh, you know, the ego took over and I jumped in this competition underprepared, didn't really have the time to, to get myself in shape for it, but I thought even at 80-85%, I could put on a good enough show that I didn't disrespect myself. I could beat this guy, and it was another competition notch on the belt, and uh, ended up going out there, did so many things different or unlike I would normally do, and I would never encourage anyone else to do. I cut weight for the first time in my professional career, uh, something I'm absolutely adamantly against. And, you know, reconstituted. So I was 332. I cut down to 308 for the competition. I lost 24 pounds in 24 hours and put 27 back on inside the same 24 hours. Um, just through water manipulation, sodium manipulation, and food manipulation. Got up the next morning uh, of the competition. I didn't feel my best. But again, you know, I was telling myself, you got to be 80% in your win. And, dude, as soon as I unracked 132, uh, which is the kilo plates, uh, which is essentially one plate. I, I knew that it was going to be a weird day and uh, went through my first squat attempt. It was like 675, 677, something like that. It went pretty well. Um, it felt heavier than it should have, but it went well. I went to 740, which I thought would be pretty much like that'll be enough to, to hold him off on the squat uh, and then maybe take a, a third or something like that. So, Second lift goes down, second lift goes up. I got an infraction for uh, stepping before the rack command, and I was already checked out. I'd taken my lifting shoes off. I was in heeled Olympic shoes and told the guy that was handling me or helping me with the the stuff. I was like, scratch my name. I'm not going to do a third. It's just not in me today. We'll move on to the bench because I was a really good bencher, and I was a really good deadlifter, and I just squatted more or less because, because I had to. I didn't love the squat, but I was good enough, and Ended up on the third attempt, rolled around. Um, they hadn't gotten a scratch or there was a miscommunication, and they called my name. And, again, you know, the ego kind of kicks in. And I'm like, well, I ain't no bitch. So 
I laced up my Chuck Taylors, which is a totally different shoe than I'd worn previously. Um, I was nursing a groin injury somewhat, and I stepped on the platform, and I realized, holy shit, one, my Chuck Taylors aren't tied. My Olympic lifting shoes are over there, so let's widen our stance kind of like that West Side style to adapt and kind of give you some more power and stability because I had taken the step uh, because the platform was a little bit uneven. And I thought a wider stance might give me some more stability, especially being in a flat-soled shoe like the Chuck Taylor. I'm assuming, though, that wider stance you hadn't worked on a whole lot. No. Yeah, that's a problem. I hadn't worked on it in about three years. (laughs) So, you know, I just wing it. But uh, so I stepped back. Felt Actually, it felt better, and it kind of felt like home in some ways. You know, know, when you're familiar with something in a way, even if you haven't done it, it feels comfortable to some level. So I start down, and as soon as I went down, uh, probably three to six inches, my my groin actually had like a, you know, like a, not a convulsion, but it just kind of spasmed, I guess. And it pulled my left knee in, and it was all she wrote. I had 744 pounds on my back, left knee turned in, uh, right knee was okay at that point, but, you know, basically went down to my knees, uh, feet were behind me, weight still on my back. And then the, the roller coaster started. I fell back over my knees, and that's when the Rice Krispies happened in my knees. Twisted both ankles pretty terribly. It dislocated my right shoulder, and uh, the weight fell out my back at that point. Well, there was an EMT that was the back spotter, and he knew that it was bad, but he, like, put his hands on my shoulders. And, dude, I'm 335 pounds, and I'm, I'm juiced to the gills. I'm pissed off I'm embarrassed and I was like just let me walk let me walk and I go to roll and my right foot stayed kind of like angled out and my right quad kind of turned with my hips as I turned and it was just like there was a total detachment between upper and lower leg I looked down at my left leg and there was some bulge sticking out of the top of my knee sleeve I wasn't wearing knee wraps I was just wearing knee sleeves and I looked down and I said what in the fuck is that and the EMT was like, that's your kneecap, sir. And uh, I was like, well, okay. So I still believed I was all right. I still believed I could walk it off. You know, I felt like they were just treating me like this pussy. And uh, I wanted, I was so mad. So I was like, just get me off the stage, get me off the stage. And it was, it was all wrapped up in embarrassment. But anyhow, they got me in a wheelchair. They take me over to L.A. County Medical Center, which if anybody listening to this isn't aware um, UCLA and Stanford would have been really nice options, but because this was considered a trauma, they had to take me to the trauma unit and the closest trauma unit legally. And dude, I walked in there and I was being triaged with a lady who had been shot in the face and her boyfriend was handcuffed to a rail in my room from a gang unit out in the hallway. There were multiple people just laying in the floor from overdoses and, and all kinds of things. So I was really like, this is not the level of care that I really want right now but it was all I could get you know they weren't going to transfer me from a trauma center and actually when the uh, the doctors got there they thought I was in uh, they thought I was in a car crash um, just from the damage to my legs and whatnot but turns out do you remember a few it's, it's been a while but there was a kid at USC that dropped 225 on his throat and had to go through extensive yep. surgical repair to fix that do you I, remember that yeah I do in fact I think there's still YouTube videos of that up um, yeah there are yeah, so okay. the cool thing about this is the doctor that did his neck surgery is a trauma surgeon that's just volunteering time at this hospital. So he comes in, 
super cool guy. He was, uh, he was an Asian doctor. Um, there's a little bit of a communication barrier there, but like he was extensively knowledgeable and, and wanted to know, he wanted to ask a million questions. He wanted to understand what I wanted to pursue. Like at that point I'm thinking, well, I, I don't really make a great living, but I make enough living to do what I want to do. So yeah, get me back to this point. Cause I need to lift. I need to be able to lift. I need to, to continue this, this journey. And, uh, he was like, okay, he goes, I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to read how to do knee surgeries and kind of laughs and walk out the door. But he was actually a very, very, like one of the top hand surgeons in the country. And he said, if I can be very intricate and delicate with the hand, which is so much more, you know, there's so many more intricacies to that than the knee. He was like, we'll get your knees right. And I felt really good about it. So he does the surgery, says everything was a success. Um, because of the hospital and because it was overrun, they ended up taking me to this, like, uh, it was like a peds respiratory unit where they have like the plastic in the rooms and everything. Well, the first night I spent right outside the nurse's station with just a, with just a, like a curtain around me and wide out the open more or less. And then the next day they moved me to that peds unit and forgot about me for two days. So no pain meds, no food, nothing for two days. And, uh, finally got somebody to come in there that was cleaning and found me. And then it was like, Oh shit, we got to do something. So they moved me to another room. Um, I still hadn't talked to my parents at this point, really told them the whole deal. We were disconnected pretty, pretty firmly at that point, but I needed some help. So I called my dad and got everything set up to get home. And dude, it was just, it was a hell week. And then when I get home, you know, more problems started because no doctors in Kentucky wanted to take my case because, you know, it was just, Literally everything in my left knee, every single thing, um, every tendon, every ligament, it was like you were taking a chicken leg or a deer leg and we're like spinning it so that you could, you know, lop it off at the joint. And uh, the only thing holding my, my leg together on the left side was skin. The right side was a patella tendon and, and uh, a quad tendon. So, you know, I'm in pretty bad shape. Found a research or a research surgeon at UK. He's the head of orthopedics. He was like, man, this will be a great case for my students. Um, come up here and we'll talk to you. So he took me on. Everything was going really good. I was I was literally on track to make a full recovery. Knee was functioning really well, but I was staying on a walker um, just to try to ease myself into recovery. And one day I went from the kitchen to the living room and you know those like strips that divide like tile and carpet? those brass strips or gold strips or whatever they are, yep. the walker got hung on that and it made me like take a, take a stutter step with my left knee. And I felt just the smallest pop, like unimaginable how small it was, but I felt it internally. And I had a doctor's appointment two days later, went about everything, took my showers, went through my, my rehab, no problem. But I mentioned it to the surgeon. I was like, Hey, I felt this pop internally. And I just wanted you to know since I'm here, that happened. He said, no problem. We'll get an x-ray. We'll get an MRI, make sure everything is good. And we'll go from there. So turns out I had separated the quad tendon uh, on one of the sides by like, he said, it's like a one to two millimeter separation. And we had the discussion. He said, you know, if you want to be a guy that sits down at a desk, works on a computer, coaches people, we'll leave it alone. It'll probably bridge. But if you ever want to get underweight again, we should probably make a small incision go in there and just kind of tidy it up so that, so that we know it's secure. Well, obviously 
you know, I want to be as strong and the best in the world. So I'm like, yeah, I've got to, I've got to be right. So I go into surgery two days later thinking, you know, this is going to be minimal. It's going to be a one inch incision. He's going to do the suture and I'm going to be back on course within two weeks. I wake up to a full zippered knee and he decided once he was in there to just kind of do an exploration surgery and make sure everything was good. And, and I understood his reasoning. You know, you, you, you have, like I said, there was a communication barrier with the doctor. Uh, there was no written notes about it. So he had the dictation uh, CD at the time to listen to the, to the doctor's notes. And there were just issues with the communication once again on that front. So the exploration surgery made sense to me. I felt good about it. He still only did the repair suture. There wasn't anything else done. So just, you know, cut through some flesh, sutured that, and then put me back together. I go to my son's basketball game that Saturday. I had surgery. The, the issue happened on Tuesday. I had surgery on Thursday, and I'm at my son's basketball game on Saturday morning. And through the course of the game, I just started to feel like the press or the wrap and compression wrap on my knee was super tight. So I looked down, and, and definitely, like, my calf was swelling. And I was like, well, holy shit, what's going on? I got to figure this out. Uh, and as soon as I stood up, it was like you popped a pimple almost. This, this stack of infection and blood just started pouring down my leg. And I freaked out. You know, I was like, well, that is terrible news. And the doctor was like, here's my tech. Or, you know, he'd given me a cell phone number previous. So I texted him. I was like, hey, doc, I got infection and blood running down my leg. I'm at a ball game. He was like, all right, come in tonight. We'll get you set up for surgery Monday morning. And that began a series of 19 or 18 more surgeries on the left knee uh, to get me even remotely back to normal. Because what would happen is I would get to a level of good, and then I would start, you know, the fear of not being Brandon Lilly, the power lifter, would creep in, and I would do stupid shit. Like there's video of me deadlifting in a straight cast at 500 pounds, um, and fucking sebaceous fluid, fluid is shooting out of my kneecap because it wasn't fully closed yet. So, and like projectile shooting, like six to eight feet in front of the, the platform. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was, I was running from like the fear of being a nobody and, and running towards this idea of being a somebody. So I was, I was at my own detriment. You know, I was my own worst enemy because I was afraid of losing the life or the recognition I had, I guess. And what I found out very quickly is that I was right. You know, the sponsors that I had, um, they weren't so eager to help or call or talk or text. Uh, a lot of my friends through the sport, you know, they were just busy moving on with their own careers, and I don't fault anybody for it. You know, I understand being more of a business-minded individual now, how those things can go, but I also know that there's a decent way to do it, and there's a fucked-up way to do it, and, and a lot of the, the situations were just completely fucked up. So, Nevertheless, I kept trying to compete for three or four more years. Um, I actually set a goal. The, the doctor told me before the first surgery I wouldn't walk for 10 months. So that same day, I called my friend in Australia, and I said, I want to do a competition down there in the fall. And it just happened to be that it was another world competition 10 months to the day. So I was like, well, he said I won't walk for 10 months. I figure I can compete in 10 months. And shortly after that, I had a nerve block in, in both legs, and I hung up the phone. And I put my feet on the ground and I kind of swiveled off the side and I just stood there and I, I shuffled my feet over to a chair and the doctor walked in and the nurse walked in and they're like going crazy. Like, what are you doing? And I said, you said 10 months and I can walk in 10 minutes. So, you know, I just had that attitude and it was all, it was all kind of like ego fear driven, but 
it was also that same competitive spirit. You know, I didn't want to be broken. I didn't want this to define me. I didn't want to be the guy that had so much potential and, and then blew it. You know, I thought about not to compare myself to him at all, but I thought about Bo Jackson a lot. He was my favorite athlete when I was a kid. Um, and I always, you know, I loved his comeback with the White Sox. I always hated that he couldn't play football, but I kind of, I wanted to emulate that story. I wanted to get back to a level and compete and just be a part of the sport because that was all I was, that was the only good thing in my life at the time. But to, you know, to kind of tip my cards a little bit, the better I got at powerlifting and the more I, I delved into that world and, and sought myself, everything on the outside just got worse. My family situation got worse. My friends kind of, you know, realized I was just putting myself above them. And, you know, when you're on an island, when you're the man, it's not so bad because people will come to the show. But when you're on an island and you're the piece of shit, well, nobody's too interested in helping you out. And that's where I found myself. You know, I just, I'd made enemies at every turn because if somebody thought they could beat me, of course I would tell them that they couldn't. And then I would try to do everything I could to show them that they couldn't. And just had a real, I mean, if I was a wrestler, I would have been the heel, you know? And uh, it, it was good for me because I needed that chip on my shoulder but it just led me to a lot of dark places. And it was 2016. It was in the middle of April. I kind of exhausted all my options to really, you know, my knee wasn't getting better. I was 14, 15 surgeries in at that point, alienated from my family, alienated from my friends. And, you know, I, I just kind of figured that, well, if you're the problem, solve the problem. And I sat there with some pain meds and a, and a pistol in my mouth. And for some reason, as much as I wanted to, I just couldn't do it. And two months later, you know, I kind of reached out to some people and, and started getting some help, not like professional help, but just was honest with people that I was struggling. And that's when I got the job with, with Sornex. I was already doing some speaking for them. I was doing some consulting with them. I was, you know, going to trade shows. I was helping coaches. And I sat down with Bert and just told him, I was like, man, I don't want to be a sponsored guy. I, w- I just want to be a, I just want to be a man that can pay his bills and, can work for something and work for somebody that I care about. And, and Bert honestly looked at me and he was like, well, we know you're valuable to us. We care about you. We love you. I don't really know what your job will be, but you know, we'll figure that out as we go. You've got a job. And it really saved my life because I didn't care enough about myself at the time to really do the things I needed to do. But I cared about Bert and I cared about Sornex so much that it, it kind of pulled me through that stage and I started to get better. And I started to, to want to do things differently and, and become a better person. So that led into, you know, Bert's an avid hunter. I had hunted when I was a kid, you know, kind of, a, you know, just drive around with a rifle in the front seat. If you see a good deer, there it is. So, you know, I was not an antler chaser. I shot does. I shot bucks. I shot anything that, that was within the, the legal limit. But it was, there was no real investment in it. It was like, it's that time of the year. You have a gun, go get some meat and that's it. Um, but I was looking for something to kind of fill that void. Uh, and I started following Cam Haynes around that time. I was listening to Rogan quite a bit and Cam's story really resonated with me. The difficulty of the elk hunts and the pack outs and all of that kind of stuff was just, was just appealing. And I started hiking. I started camping. I wanted to lose weight. I got myself down to 300 pounds and I was like, man, this is, this is a much better thing. Uh, for me, you know, I feel like I can chase this thing and, and be good at it, but not have to owe anybody, not be obligated to sponsors, not be, you know, out here feeling the pressure of it. And ended up 
uh, started hunting whitetail and turkey again with my bow, had some success and, and really kind of delved deeper. But even up until a couple of years ago, I had no imagination that I, I like, I grew up in Paint Lake, Kentucky, right? It's just a small ass town. And my papa, when I first went to California, he was like, you might as well have told me you're going to the moon because, you know, California just seemed that far away and out of reach uh, to, to, to my people, you know, to, it just, just seemed like a foreign, foreign place, you know? So once I started traveling for powerlifting, I knew that my options were bigger than I'd ever realized. But now that hunting was here and, you know, I've listened to the elk stories, I've listened to the mule deer stories. They were just kind of that peripheral thing that I was aware of, but never really believed was for me. And then Sornex has a flagship event. We have Summer Strong and then we have Winter Strong. And Winter Strong is geared towards more the outdoor community. And I met Chino out there, JP. And, you know, JP is just a nice guy. He's, he's super friendly. He's got an outfitter. And he came over to me and was talking to me. And he was like, man, you ought to get out west and hunt someday. And that made it real. Like, that made it tangible that this thing was possible, that, hey, there are people out there that that want to see you do, do good in other things and expand yourself and grow. And beyond the challenge, you know, which a lot of people talk shit and a lot of people say do this or do that, JP was like, come out to my place and I'll, I'll teach you. I'll show you how to do this. And I went out there on a mule deer hunt, of course, got my ass kicked. Went on another mule deer hunt, of course, got my ass kicked. And he was like, why don't you try for an elk draw? You know, let me see if I can help you with that. Well, I'll teach you that system too. Because, you know, going from Eastern where you can, in Kentucky, you can buy a sportsman tag and pretty much hunt anything, um, you know, anywhere to specific units, specific draw times, specific, you know, all that stuff was just another, it was like a foreign language to me. But JP and his boys and, and his guides out there are really the primary reason that I ever even pursued or thought that, that Western hunting would be a reality for me. So I, I, I kind of claim that I'm a, I'm a hunter at heart, but I'm really just kind of reinvesting myself in the last five years from whitetail and turkey to three unsuccessful mule deer hunts. Uh, one failed elk hunt, and then now a successful elk rifle hunt in uh, in Arizona. I've hunted a couple other places unsuccessfully as well, so I feel like I'm getting an honest introduction to Western hunting because uh, I, I still have a long way to go. But you know, I'm finding myself in positions where I don't think about my knee, I don't think about powerlifting. You know, I, I fully endorse myself as a as an outdoorsman and an outdoor enthusiast, but. You know, it's been a long, tough ride to get here, but I'm I'm very, very grateful that I found it. Now that's 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 awesome. Actually, while you're talking about getting your butt kicked, how many large deer did uh, Bert miss this year? With uh, JP, how many large deer? I don't know if he's missed one this year. I'll, I think he. <laughs> uh, and I think out there he missed. A, I think he missed a good buck out there uh, this year. Um, I don't know if it was a failed shot or just a failed stalk, but I know he was he was chasing a big one, and then he had a miss two years ago and we were out there together as well so yeah, jp um, told and, me and not to, something about it he said something about he asked him if he needed a uh, wet wipes because he had just shit the bed or something i it was fun i was laughing cause it, <laughs> well, it's, it's and a, maybe maybe i maybe i like Bert too much to ask you know uh when, when guys <laughs> when guys aren't having success i just kind of let them be but it, i think he sure made up the word on the white tails this year he, he used to put down He's put down three or four giants this year. Yeah, he has. I, I was going to call him, but I haven't had a chance. But the Western hunting, it's just different. I mean, I getting you know more and more into whitetail hunting, which excites me because I haven't done that as much as the 
the Western hunting thing. But before we dive too much into the hunting stuff, just for people listening in, having um, obviously not nearly the the ability that you have, but kind of diving into the powerlifting and the gym scene and everything else, you know, I, I get uh, a ton of questions at times, you know, on, you know, weight gain, you know, hey, or, you know, it, it, if you're kind of a larger chubby kind of body type, you're probably never going to be tiny but you can yep. adapt, learn to diet, you know, you can get smaller. And if you're a stick figure, you're probably never going to be giant, but you can get, you know, bigger. In the case, you and I are built somewhat the same. Obviously, you're, you're much bigger, but I was naturally about 220. I think I got about to 275, um, and I was on gear and eating like a horse. That took about 8,000 calories a day for me to put that much mass on, and, and that's for for, you know, if you're a skinny guy, you're going to have to put even more effort into it. Maybe not that many calories, but when when you right. when you got on like with the gear and 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 uh, you know the when you got competing, you know you talked about you know not you know everything else took second place and maybe it did. The level of commitment that takes, the dieting, the lifting, I don't know that people maybe grasp that. How much? Yeah, that's a twenty-four-seven, in my opinion, commitment to be at that peak level. So for you, um, dieting—you know, when I say dieting, meaning not you were on a diet, you, the caloric intake. How much did you put yep. into meal prep? How much were you at the gym? Um, you know, I was to a point I would bring food, um, and on heavy days I would eat fifteen minutes after I lifted, literally at the gym while I was changing my clothes. I would be pumping sure. food in my system. You want to talk? Yep. You know, someone at your level, obviously, I, I just tried to be there. Talk a little bit about that. And would you suggest, um, and I'm not going to say anything on my opinion of it, the gear side of things. Like, I get a ton of questions that guys want to take, um, uh, you know, some type of an anabolic, some type of a test. Um, yep. you know, what is your suggestion to guys on that? Is that a smart thing? Are they stupid? Should they just diet better and work harder? Kind of dive into all that. Well, let me let me start. It's kind of a it's a fragmented answer because it's conditional, right? So I'll start with the nutrition side first. I was not a big big guy. I was like 175 pounds frame uh, when I was in college or in high school, 175 to 185 pounds. I grew a little bit after high school, two or three inches more, and I was on a on a program for the throwers. And at this point, you know, I was I was just eating as much food as I could. I was a broke ass college kid chicken thighs, eggs, rice, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, whole milk, Oreos, pretty much, you know, when you're that age, you can get away with a lot. So I tell people that are young lifters, just experiment, like eat until you and use your mirror. I don't even, I don't even say use the scale, but use your mirror and try to find an ideal where like you look like an athlete. You don't want to just be a, a piece of shit, you know, or at least I didn't. And uh, what happened is, you know, I pretty much held that line. I got as big as 320, and you could see, I don't want to say you could see abs like a bodybuilder, but you could see the separation from my abs to my obliques from 315 to 320. Um, I would have separation from the deltoid to the, to the bicep and tricep. So while I was a big guy, I could I could kind of suck my stomach in, even at 36, 38-inch waist, um, and, and look like I was just a big, like kind of a Zangief from a street fighter type, you know, and then <laughs> you do look like that. Now injury, that you say that. Yeah. <laughs> so like after my injury, um, 
mass moves mass. So I stopped taking care of the, the nutrition side and the, the physical side because I just wanted to be as big, as strong as I could to kind of be the X factor to, to, to accelerate my return to the platform at a high level. So I got myself up as high as 348, but that 348 was like the piece of shit blob that I, that I would never encourage anyone to look like, you know, it was, it was desperation mode at that point. But to tell people, uh, kind of structured diet and whatnot, when I was competing around 300 pounds in the off season, I was eating 45 to 5,500 calories a day. Every day I, I was always committed somewhat to, you know, there were times that I got on the fast food rip, but most of the time, especially in the off season, when I had no pressure, I really chose to follow something similar to what Stan Efforting does now, which is called a vertical diet, which is based around beef, rice, eggs, kind of a, you know, it, it's not necessarily like a carnivore or something like that, but it's just, when you look at it, it's like, okay, those are good quality foods that you want to put in your body. I, I never lifted as well on chicken or fish, so red meat and eggs were always a staple, um, game meat here and there throughout because I had friends that were hunting. I had no time for anything else. Um, except my lifting. And I, I knew when I was at home, kind of much like I am now with jujitsu and hunting, like when I'm not doing those things, I'm watching YouTube videos or listening to podcasts about them because those are my primary interests now. But, you know, I would usually, I was kind of a night owl, so I was up till 2 or 3 in the morning, wake up around 10 or 11, uh, eat meal one, and then um, like an hour later have a shake, eat meal two a couple hours later, and then go to the gym around 4.30 or 5, train until 5.30 or 7.00 have a shake right after, have a meal 30 minutes after that. And then I would get home, shower, change my clothes, review the lifts, maybe edit for a YouTube video or something from that day's training. And then I would have another meal. And then every night before bed, it was either a sleeve of Oreos, which was 15 Oreos and uh, like a quart of milk, or uh, it was a big bowl of ice cream with peanut butter and chocolate syrup and bananas cut up in it. Anything that I could do to get calories, um, you know, the good food was the base, but I was filling those, like, the calories that just felt like impossible to get with anything and everything confectionery or, or, or sugary that I could get. And it was, you know, it didn't it didn't hurt because it was like I was really having a – it's kind of like Michael Phelps. You know, that guy needs to eat 12,000 calories because of the, the way that he worked out. I needed to eat five or 6,000 calories to, to, to maintain and, and maybe even build a little bit. But whenever I got into competition mode, it was more like you were talking 7,000 to 8,000 calories a day. And, you know, that's when the fast food would take hold because it was like, it's just easier to get a thousand calories from, from, you know, a shitty cheeseburger than it is from chicken breast and rice. So McKenzie's kind of laughing here and I I don't want to interrupt too much, but to, to dive into this, if I ate like that and I wasn't on gear the way I was, uh, I would have been a big fat fucker and I was still big, yeah. but you know, I'm only throwing that in because I don't want a normal 180 pound guy trying to stuff 7,000 calories down his throat and think that's going to fix everything. And and I want yeah. you to yeah. dive into this a little more well, staying anabolic. Yeah. You, you, yes. The so from a, from a standpoint of, of drugs, what people don't realize if it was, if drugs were the answer, if drugs made you stronger, um, and, and listen, I think strength is a byproduct of what the drugs actually do. The drugs just speed up your ability to recover and assimilate nutrients. So, you know, if you take testosterone and you sit on the couch and you eat pizza, you're going to be a fat piece of shit. If you take testosterone and you go out here and you push yourself and you challenge your body and you feed it the right fuel, 
well, you're going to get some pretty incredible results. Now, that being said, you know, you talked about being, you know, committed to that and committed to the training and using, and using drugs and gear and whatnot, but you didn't get to the same level that I got to. So there still is a separation factor based on genetics, based on time of investment, based on dedication. And, and, and really it is a, it's a long man's game. You know, nobody is going to get ultimately strong in two years. So you kind of have to be at a point where I had trained five or six years naturally and exhausted that. And, and I think that primes your body when you do make a decision or if you, if you do make that decision that your body is already conditioned to do this thing really, really well. And now you're just giving assistance to it. You know, it's, it's adding a supercharger to a Corvette rather than like putting a, a, a supercharger on a Ford Fiesta. You know, you've kind of, you've kind of developed a, a system and an organism that is built and proven that it can do this thing at a high level. I was just at a crossroads of, well, there's no testing. Everyone that I know that's doing this at a high level is on. Um, I'm not really basing my decision on the fact that they're on and I'm not, but I, I did want to be the best in the world. And I, and I, you know, kind of had that self conversation that there are certain steps that I will have to take to be the best in the world if I'm ever to achieve that. And like, I was already there. Like I told you, I was uh, 19 years old and hit 660, 440 and 670 completely natural. So I already had the strength proclivity. Like I was already going in that direction in in a natural way. I just had a point to decide, did I want to do this at a level to be the best in the the world? And I had already relegated myself because my life just fucking sucked outside of the platform. I told myself over and over, like if I lived to 50, that just means I didn't try hard enough, you know? And, uh, I, I just, just, I want to make sure, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting over cold. None of this shit is taken out of context. Um, to put this in, in to the level that Brandon was at, uh, is a level. I don't think people may be grasping listening right now, or, or maybe they are, but when you talk about w- one of the reasons I started, there was guys in the gym that were much like yourself that would watch me train my build. They're like, man, <clears throat> if you take this, if you, you know, you do this, this, and this, and they help me out you've got good potential. You, you've, you can go somewhere. You need to understand before you dive into this shit. And I am, I am not telling people to do it, but it's kind of like sex before marriage, right? When your parents talk to you, you're not telling them to go do it, but you want to give them some advice. If you're five foot five kid that, uh, you know, is a little stick figure, probably not going to play in the NBA. So you might want to swerve your career choice. Right? So if, in my opinion, unless you have a God-given gift, much like yourself, you shouldn't fuck with this stuff. Just eat healthy and lift lift hard and, you know, lift like a grizzly and eat or lift like an ox, you know, eat like a grizzly, however you want to look at it. Yep. There's no reason to put this shit in your, in my opinion, and you may disagree, to put this shit in your body unless you already have the potential to be one of the best. Because if you're not going to be the best, why the fuck would you do it? Uh, in my opinion. Right. Throw your two cents Yeah, and I, I, think, I think that's a fair statement. You know, and, and like I said, I was at a crossroads where I was already, you know, I was kind of at a top 50, top 30 level. I mean, you know, like I said, my squat was kind of the thing that held me back. I was always a really good bench presser, benched over 600 pounds raw in competition, benched over 800 in the shirt. Um, you know, so those, those things were like enough inclination to be like, hey, let's get there. And, and I, I did bench 500 pounds natural. Um, so, you know, I kind of hit some markers that were like, you're in the ocean, but if you want to swim with the sharks, you're going to have to, you're going to have to play the game. And 
right or wrong, uh, I made the choices and I, and I achieved the things that I wanted to achieve. But the average person that is out there just like doing this, you know, especially somebody that's, that's a backpack hunter that think that's thinking that they want to beef up and get some kind of advantage. I would just tell you that you're probably going to limit yourself in certain ways that you don't realize. Cause when you get on those drugs at certain levels, your circulatory system changes, your respiratory system changes. Like if you take D ball and try to go hike a mountain, you're fucked because it compromises your, your lung capacity. It really does diminish your ability to have a cardiovascular level very high. So as a backpacker, you know, there, there are things as a young backpacker, dude, you're, you're already on the right track. You're out in the woods, you're in the outdoors, uh, train to train because at 30 years old, I'm going to have a different conversation with somebody 30, 32, 34, 35, especially I'm starting to get a lot of messages from guys in that age bracket. Cause I'm 39. And, uh, that would be a time that I would consider talking to your doctor and getting TRT, you know, something along the lines of testosterone, and anti-estrogen to keep you in balance, and then maybe some HCG if you're interested in having kids and keeping your sperm count high. Growth hormone, maybe, like if you can afford it, one, and two, if you really have a need for it, or three, you know, there might be some other peptides or something. I'm a big advocate of peptides for healing. I know you had a similar bicep injury to me from my bicep. It rolled up into the shoulder. They drilled through the forearm and whatnot. So I use some peptides, which are basically amino acids, extracted from the, the amino acid chain that is growth hormone, human growth hormone, and that's 126 amino acids in that profile. So the, the peptides, let's say BPC-157 or TB-500, which are both known to have exceptional healing of ligament, tendon, tissue, they have uh, inflammation reduction qualities, those are specific amino acids that are branched <laughs> together in a peptide that you can take much more affordably than you can take growth hormone. So, you know, if you're getting real medical grade growth hormone, you're going to be talking somewhere in the neighborhood of eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars a month. Whereas something like a peptide for a specific for a specific outlet, like a healing or recovery, you're going to be looking somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred dollars for a two month supply. So, so I, the peptide, I don't stay on peptide. The pep, well, I just could just because I'm doing what you're talking about. Um, I took just standard growth daily for a while. It is expensive. Yep. What I have found is I do take a peptide. I do it 10 weeks off, 10 on, 10 off. I can work that in yep. with my hunting season. It helps a ton yep. with recovery. You get a little bit, I may be imagining this, helps you cut up a little bit, um, or it seems yep. to miss me. Um, it's I think for me it's 280 bucks for 10 weeks, I think is what it yeah. costs. Does that sound yeah, that is what it costs. Sounds, I mean, that, that sounds realistic, but um, there, there are avenues that I can help you out there too. I know there's some good companies out there, and um, I don't want to, I don't want to make this like a banner of like, hey, run out there and do this because Aaron said to do it, or Brandon did this and advocates it, or whatever. But if you find yourself at a point that you you have an injury, there are some some things like just tell people to research BPC one five seven, TB five hundred, and understand that anything that has an upside has an equal and opposite downside at some point. Like the, the levels that I'm doing now, as far as my TRT, I'll be very honest and open with everyone. I run between 200 and 250 milligrams of tests a week. Uh, I use Cypionate. That's a, that's kind of the mid range action. Propionate, which is a shorter chain ester testosterone actually can give you a lot of side effects. If you get outside of that window, because what, what a lot of guys don't think about is when your testosterone goes up, your body doesn't just say, Oh, this is awesome. I love it your body is always seeking homeostasis. So 
if your if your testosterone rises, your estrogen is going to rise as well. And what happens when you take something so fast acting like propionate, it's an every other day injection or an everyday injection, your estrogen does not come down as quickly as the testosterone recedes in the body. So you get these out of whack balances, you get acne, you get hair loss, you get, you get sexual side effects and whatnot. So those things, the shorter, faster actings are usually reserved more for specific uh, health cases or they're better for like the last week or two of competition when you're really just trying to pile on the most recovery, the most mass, and, and a little bit of aggression because those things in the same fold, you know, you're shooting this like blast of testosterone in there and, and it's very, very effective. It's very, very short ended. So you're going to get these swings of aggression and like all the things that are male. So there's a long chain, which is uh, an anthate, which takes about 10 to 12 days between injections. Uh, some people do six. They do a half, uh, half injection on that. That's what I and took and I liked it a it, lot. Yeah, I, I, there's there's an argument for it, but for me, um, I like to take my injections every four days, and that's kind of the perfect cycle for the stipulate. Because what would happen at ten or twelve days? I'm so busy and so stupid most of the time. I'd be like, oh shit, it's three days late, yeah. or it's two days early, or this, that, and the other. So I like that four days. It's like every four days, boom, there it is. And I draw two, I draw two injections out, and I leave them both on my my nightstand. So. As I'm taking the one, the one is on my nightstand every day. So it's not like I might get a day earlier, I might get a day late, but I'm not going to go three, four, five days over. And to help that, I take uh, an astrazole, which is a, an anti-estrogen, and I take 0.3 twice a week uh, to just kind of combat uh, any spikes in estrogen. Because estrogen, I mean, just for any guy that's listening hey, to this, but hold, anybody but, that's ever had it. A- hold up, Brandon, before Sorry. we confuse people way too much, I'm going to rewind just a little bit. Um, sure, sure. Okay, so the one, the enanthate was what I was taking when I was trying to get giant, along with many, many other yep. things. Um, right yep. now, sip is I take 200 milligrams of sip in a, a week, but not too much different than yep. you. What I want to make sure That's is about what I think. Yeah, well, I want to make sure that is very, very, very clear because I've had some pretty horrible message sent to me. Um, you know, about steroids, and, and that is a very, very broad term. Um, to me, when you talk about I'm on steroids, you are taking yep. something to get, if you believe in God, however you want to look at it, far beyond what you are naturally supposed to be. Meaning, sure. in my case, I could bench about 405 naturally. On gear yep. clean, I could do upwards of six. I'm not genetically yep. supposed to do that. The The gear helped. When you talk about yep. TRT, especially for all the people that are fucking assholes listening in and then just chalk it up to steroids, I've had multiple head injuries, which is one of the main problems I have with low test. I went and I got right. tested. At my age, I should be at a certain level of testosterone. And I was significantly yep. below that. Okay, well, common sense says if I want to feel better and act better, more sex drive and all that, that if you go in and you have a cold, they give you medicine. If you have whatever, there's there's a remedy for it. What they yep. what TRT is is just to get you back to where you should be, not at some epically high level to go compete in the Arnold or the world's strongest man. It's to get you back where you should be. And people, especially fucking assholes on the internet, don't seem to understand that. And there's a lot of people in that 38 to 45, 50 range that are suffering from low test, uh, and whether it's their, sure. their diet or whatever, that if you are at a test level at 42 years old of 
175 to 250, that's not normal. You're probably falling asleep around two. Your workouts suck. You're getting fat. You may naturally or genetically have low test. You may have head injuries and multiple other things. So you want to talk because you're way smarter at this shit than I am a little bit about that before we move on. Cause I want to make sure people understand the difference between testosterone replacement therapy. Doctors prescribe that it gets you back to where you naturally should be when you're on quote unquote yep. steroids. You are going far past where you should naturally be. So go ahead. For sure. Yeah. So TRT, let's just, let's just break that down. That is testosterone replacement therapy. So that, that means, that means that there's a replacement to a deficiency. And like, like Aaron said, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount and, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a chemist, I'm not a biologist, but, you know, I was putting these things in my body. So I got a high grasp of a lot of the information. So if I butcher something medically or professionally, you know, I apologize, but I do want to tell people that, you know, I, I put 20 years of my life towards understanding this stuff so that I could be the best that I could. Um, we're, we're kind of at, and I hate to use the word war, but there is a sense of the fact that the American male is at war with so many things. And, and I don't remember the name of the lady right off the top of my head that was on Rogan, but she specifically was investigating and researching the damage that plastic has done to the hormone levels. You know, there, there's a significant uh, correlation between uh, testosterone reduction and some of the plastics that we use. You know, they talked about BPA-free, you know, being one of the things, but there's 1,700 other plastics that are damaging to estrogen, to testosterone, to, to body functions that we don't even fully understand. We know that plastics cause cancer. We know that they, they cause all kinds of problems. So systemically, we are, we are trying to combat an uphill battle here. You know, like we're, we're at assault because our foods are processed. Our foods are not the quality that they were a hundred years ago. There's, there's a lot of problems that are, that are just realistic to the American male. So from a testosterone replacement therapy level, your doctor is going to give you a blood test. I get blood tested every three months. He looks at those ranges. He, he knows that I don't want to just be a guy in the office, he knows I want to be more like I've always been. I've always been a little bit higher testosterone than the average guy, but he's not putting me into a level of high. He is putting me into a level of high normal, which is very, very attainable with like what Aaron said between, you know, 150 and 250 milligrams per week. And what I do is based on what my blood test says. Like if I go in there and I've been on 250 milligrams for three months, and I'm starting to creep towards that high level, not just normal to high, then I go down to 200 milligrams a, a week. And there's always a, a scalable adjustment because we're not, like he said, I'm not trying to be Superman anymore. I just want to feel better. I just want to look good enough in the mirror that like the work that I'm doing is reflected in the mirror. I'm not trying to be Mr. Olympia. I'm not trying to have abs uh, walking around at 7% body fat. I'm very, very comfortable being just a guy that works really hard but my system is working in conjunction with the effort that I'm putting forward. It's not working against me. So these 40 year old guys that are out there that are, that are killing it in the gym, they're doing the right things on the diet and they just feel like shit. Well, it's completely normal. I mean, we sit here and we celebrate when a woman goes and gets her hormones leveled off, but we, we bastardize or talk shit about guys doing it. And to tell you the truth, the numbers that I, I was doing and the numbers that I was seeing just from testosterone, testosterone alone in competition, I mean, 1,500 milligrams to 2,000 milligrams was very much a common occurrence. And, you know, I will speak only about myself. I won't point the finger at anyone else. 
that made sense to me because it was like it was attainable. It was within reach. The more that I took, the better that I, I seemed to be able to eat more food. I seemed to recover, recover better. I got stronger. I slept better. Like all of those things will work. They will absolutely take you to whatever level that you're willing to indulge yourself, whether from a pharmaceutical level, from a nutrition level, from an effort level, all of those things working in conjunction. And yeah, you will be a super beast version of yourself. You're never going to be Brian Shaw. Brian Shaw is six foot eight. He's 440 pounds. And he's yoked to the gills. But a guy, like you said, that's 5'5", 175 pounds, might ought to take a hard look at himself and say, should I do the same things that Brian Shaw is doing? And I would argue, absolutely not. What I would tell people to do, if they decide to take that choice, at 25, 26, 27 years old, you're probably diminishing your natural supply because it's just like anything else. If your body doesn't have to make something because you're supplying it with it, that's just like the, the essence of the keto diet. If you flood your body with, with fat through your gut and you're constantly putting fat into your body, your body doesn't have to store fat because it's consistently having fat put in it. So your body will actually stop producing testosterone when you continue to put exogenous testosterone in. Um, and that will diminish your natural ability to produce testosterone if you ever decide to come off. And guess what? And you're going to need TRT. So to the younger guys out there, I would recommend push yourself learn yourself, figure your body out. And if you get to the point where it's like, I have a competition or I want to look a specific way, like a very specific way, like I'm never going to tell a person not to do something. People are, are free to make their own choices, but I would encourage everyone to make, you know, very legitimate, educated decisions. And I'm telling you right now, if I would, if I could go back to my twenties and, and not delve into that world, I probably would have got another three, four, five years um, natural just to kind of extract and get as much out of my own body as I could. And I can tell you right now, four really, really great powerlifters that I competed with went a little bit further natural than I did. And they're still, you know, they still made it to the top of the game. So again, to, to a backpacker or a hunter, there are aspects that you will see at 30 years old plus where I would recommend TRT to anyone. If you're under 30, I would take a long, hard look at myself and say, why? And like really ask why, why am I doing this? Is it because I, I'm not giving enough effort in the gym? Is it because I'm not disciplined with my diet? And that's what I tell people all the time. The number one thing that your body cannot live without is oxygen. Learn to breathe better. Secondary is water. Drink a lot of water. Make sure you're hydrating your system. You know, we're 73% water. Make sure you're putting enough water in there so that you're not starving your ecosystem. Have a good balanced diet get sleep and then supplement with like protein powders, creatines, BCAAs. And if you're doing those five things really, really well, oxygen, hydration, nutrition, sleep, and supplementation, I bet you would change your body in ways inside 10 to 12 weeks that you would normally get the expectation from testosterone replacement therapy. Like you can do a lot for yourself when your body's working really well, if you're willing to do the work. If those five things are going like a 40 year old guy that I work with right now, he does those five things extremely well and he's not seeing progression. And I know that he's telling me the truth because I've hunted with him. I've, I've seen him make the effort. Number six would be exogenous testosterone or anabolics. So cover your five first bases optimally. And when those start to fail, that's probably a sign that your body's not working optimally and you need to see a doctor. So I, I want to, um, 
while we're diving into this, because this actually ended up being a way better podcast than I thought this fucker would be. So, um, I, <laughs> the because I get all these questions and I'm just not at a level I can answer some of them. So, for for me, it was everything you talked about. I, Rogan and a couple other guys were like, "Dude, you diet, you're you're road marching, you're backpacking, you're riding a bike." Um, you know, you're not your drink. I drink 120 ounces of water a day at a minimum, all the things that you need to do. And I was lagging and it was just head injuries. I've had nine major concussions. So, you know, things to think about, but rewinding a little, you brought up uh, homostasis and the way that I have tried to explain to people where this is applicable to diet is homostasis is how I've explained it is the body's ability to stay the same. Um, yep. and, and so if you ever meet those guys that are skinny fat, and they're not obese, but they're eating ho-hos, little Debbies and drinking Mountain Dew and shit. And they're like, what? I'm not fat. It's like, well, your body has figured out at this point in time in your life, it, it's adapted to stay the same or, or it's, it's gotten used to that. But as you get older and your um, basically your metabolism gets lower, you're, you're going to get fatter. But two, you're not technically healthy. You're just not a fat fucker. So right. what, 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 what people need to understand is, is – um, and you're doing a very good job of explaining this. If you're going to be a backpack hunter, you know, you probably want to do a lot more, uh, you know, body movements. You want to do air squats and lunges and push-ups and pull-ups and core strength. And you don't want to pack on a shit ton of mass because the more muscle you have, the more oxygen it takes to feed that. And when you, if you know, if you want to go be a power lifter, forget everything I just talked about. You're not going to want to do backpack cardio and shit. And so... Um, when you're talking about, like you were saying, dieting, I would say if I would have actually put the effort into uh, lifting and dieting that I did into bulking and steroids, I would have probably, one, I probably would have 10 more years of my life in the wilderness and good knees, but I probably would have packed on 15 pounds of healthy, good mountain muscle. And instead, I yep. packed on 60 pounds of bulk and mass that all kind of went away after I got off of everything. You, you brought it up quickly. Yeah. Talk about that. When you talked about, you know, you, you just went through those like six different things on the dieting portion of things. I've had people talk about this before on here, but when you talk about the, um, when you have processed carbs, you have, you know, the, the Oreo cookies, the things that fat kids like myself like to eat, Get those things out of your system. Get, you know, all the Mountain Dew and, and even Gatorade's not great for you unless you're running marathons and shit. Can you talk about yep. that just a little bit of, of what somebody that wants to be a mountain hunter should be eating? That's, you know, whether they need to lose weight or not, where they should end up and kind of how they should be training. Because in my opinion, you shouldn't be, you know, trying to deadlift 800 pounds. If you're going to be a mountain hunter, your workout is going to be different. Yeah, so I'll start with the workout aspect of it, and I think you touched on it perfectly. I, I have no, I have no qualms about watching people barbell squat and deadlift and that kind of stuff because one, there's a ton of information out there. There's a ton of valuable usefulness to those things, but I also know that like very, very seldom do those type of movements translate to what I'm doing on the mountain. Right? You're very static. You're in you're in one position and you're you're picking it up or putting it down. And nothing against that. You can build muscle that way. But what I'm more interested in, and especially now, I train uh, a Wolf Brigade gym system, uh, which is which is founded by Greg Walsh, which is basically kettlebell, barbell, and mace training. And one that those three things really complement my my grappling tremendously. 
Um, but they also are like fluid movements. Like one of the, one of the staples of his program is get your ass off the ground. You know, how many older or elderly people do you know that, that fall and don't even know how to get themselves up? So every single day within his training, we're getting up on the ground. Every single day in his training, we're pulling ourselves up via body weight, like pull-ups or push-ups or, you know, we're doing a lot of things that are applicable to the mountain, but they also streamline the physique. You know, I'm, I'm 230 pounds right now better than the 230 pounds I was in college. And part of that is because I got myself up to a massive 300 plus pounds. But what I would encourage people to do, you're hunting from September Maybe if you're lucky like I did this year, you get to hunt Hawaii in June or something. But you're going to be hunting those western hard hunts from August to, to December, right? So you have eight or nine months to maybe bulk up in January, February, March through the through the Christmas holiday season and stuff to like 10 or 15 pounds over your mountain weight. That's where you're going to kind of get this yo-yo effect where you kind of stretch the organism, induce more stress, maybe do some more of your barbell heavy lifting, and then as, uh, you know, May or June rolls around and the mountain's calling, that's when you've got to start transferring over and doing, like, some movement-type stuff, some rucking-type stuff. And I think that's just very, very beneficial because, as Aaron mentioned, you know, the oxygenation of your body is, is crucial out there. I mean, you have to understand that, that your lungs are the vehicle that are going to get you to and from a place and back out again. You know, if you don't have the lung capacity or you don't have the cardio capacity, well, that hunt that was was successful and got an animal on the ground might become the end of the road if you're not made to get over the mountain with that weight on your back. So I really, really adapted to uh, the Wolf Brigade system, which is which is just phenomenally written. I don't think there is a better system out there in the world uh, for, for what I'm doing collectively. Um, but nevertheless, look at things that mimic what you're going to be doing on the mountain. Like if you're just going out there and thinking, well, I deadlift 500 for 10 sets of 10, um, which is a phenomenal thing that you can do. I don't know how many times you're going to be deadlifting 500 in the woods 10 times, or I don't know how far that cardio effect is going to take you over a mountain. So think about yourself more as an, as an outdoor athlete rather than just like this compartmentalized, I go to the gym and then I go to the mountain. Think about the year. Think about your life. Think about the structure of your of your yourself in a way that is benefiting all that you're chasing. Now, if you want to bodybuild or you want to be a wrestler or you want to do something like that, then there's different parts of the equation. But just as somebody that's listening to this as an outdoor enthusiast that wants to be better, wants to be stronger, wants to be in better shape, kettlebells, barbells, mace training, I think those three things cover the bases. And that's where I stick to. As far as nutrition, much like I said before, we are a highly, highly evolved organism. Like, People forget, because we have computers and cell phones and stuff, that we evolved to be survivalists. And we, survive, we evolved to be killers. And we, be, we evolved to walk 30 or 40 miles a day if we needed to. Um, we, are, we are built to work. So we've lived in this life where the, the societal constructs make life and survivability easy. Um, part of that is the food portioning, you know, as far as what we get and how we can get it and the processing of that to, to keep it sustainable. Our bodies are not designed to process sugar from like sugar granules. We're processed or we're designed to process sugars and extract those valuable sugars from fruit or from vegetables in some cases like starchy carbs and whatnot. My rule of thumb, and I won't, I won't try to impress this upon anyone else, but my rule of thumb is I like to keep things one to two degrees away from the earth, right? So if I kill an animal, I either do some kind of, of, of 
sear and eat that thing medium rare, or I, I'll even do some tartare, uh, those kind of things, because that is as close to the animal as it can be. I don't like making a lot of like shepherd's pies and things like that, where you're really just taking this beautiful, awesome, hard-earned meat and then masking it with all these other flavors. I fucking love shepherd's pie, and I will eat it, but that's not <laughs> going to be the basis of my meal, right? Um, and like potatoes. I love mashed potatoes with butter, but then again, I also know that adding the cream and adding an extra salt and adding in whatever, those things can become complications to, okay, it's just more steps in the process. So meat as it is, cooked, seared, quick, whatever. Um, you know, sweet potatoes are my go-to over white potatoes. I just tend to digest those a little bit better. I don't get the bloat from that. And then my vegetables are steamed. And if you look at my plates, I post everything that I eat pretty much on a, on a secondary page I run called Peace, Love, and Meat. And you see, most of the time I have a, a protein portion. I have some kind of green or, or starchy carb. And then I always have some kind of fruit, dragon fruit, apples, berries, whatever it is. And these are, these are just things that are pulled off of the, of the vine or pulled off of the fruit and put in a package and then repurposed exactly as they are. Like I eat whole strawberries. I eat whole, whole blueberries. I slice my apples, I slice my peaches, I slice my dragon fruit. So to me, and I would, you know, this is the challenge I made to myself. I want to live 100% or have the option to live 100% of my protein sourcing off of game meat that I harvested. So why would I go to all this effort and, and pursue that goal and then turn around and like have a bunch of starchy breads and have a bunch of like, you know, confections and things like that to kind of diminish my ability to do this one thing that I'd want to do really, really well. Because I can tell you, when you put an Oreo in your body, God, I used to eat 15 a day religiously, sometimes 30 a day religiously. And I love them. I love cakes. I love confections. I love all the things that everybody out there would love. Like a Snickers bar, that becomes my best friend sometimes on the mountain. But nevertheless, those things are, are peripheral, and those are the exception to the rule. Your body is looking for things that when you when you put – you know, it's like the levels of fuel for a, for a drag car. You put gasoline in there, well, there's still a lot of problems in there. When you get to, like, something like ether alcohol, that's pure. You know, those things, they, they run a lot faster because they run a lot hotter. Well, guess what happens to your body when you put food in there that it's like, oh, this isn't a threat to my system. This isn't something that I have to break down 15 different ways to process. If you make the job easier for your body by just making better choices, you're going to set your organism up to be a better thing towards the goal that you have, which is harvesting an animal successfully. And I know that there's people out there that, yeah, I drink beers and I do this and I do that. Dude, I drink a beer too. I enjoy myself, but it's never the overindulgence where the overindulgence becomes the standard. You know, I always have like five or six days in my week, which are highly disciplined. And then on that seventh day, um, you know, I'm going to enjoy, you know, pizza or beer with my friends or family or whatever it may be. I allow myself to live, but I hold the standard six of the seven days and I eat two meals a day. I have a shake every day. Um, and, and my breakfast tends to be eight to 10 whole eggs. Um, and that, that right there is, is anabolic in and of itself. There's no more anabolic food that you can put in your body than an egg. So eight to 10 of those in the morning with some fruit, maybe some sourdough bread because it's not as hard on the system as other breads. Um, you know, and, and occasionally I'll have some oatmeal or some cream of rice, um, I was on antibiotics for four years and it really fucked up my gut system. So this, this was actually like a medical decision to go to a very simplified one step away from the organic 
nature of the earth. You know, like I didn't want to do a bunch of processed foods because if I ate anything that was processed, I was either shitting myself to death or puking all, all the time or my gut was just distended. So I went to almost like what they call an elimination diet where I started over just eating eggs and rice and I could eat those things and I could improve myself and I felt good. And then I added in chicken and then I added in beef and then I added in fish and I added in sweet potatoes and I added in fruit. So systematically and accidentally, I developed a system that, holy shit, when I eat this way and I eliminate these other things, you know, dude, I keep a Coke Zero with me because that's one of those, like, that's the thing that keeps me from going in the, the, the gas station and just ripping through bags of Doritos. Like, I'm human. I want those things. I crave those things. But at the end of the day, I crave my ability to do a job well more. I, I crave the ability to be a successful hunter and learn to be a successful hunter more. So, you know, I, I have 20 years of discipline behind that. Even when I was eating all those chaotic foods, it was still with a disciplined intention that I need to eat them to perform. And that's the same way I view it now. I really, really take a structured approach to my diet because I'm not only trying to, to hunt for the, for, you know, for the animal and the thrill of that. I'm trying to hunt to change my life. I'm trying to hunt to improve the fact that, that I want to live and understand this, this world because I don't understand the technology world. I don't understand the average person. But when I meet people like you or I meet people like Chino and those guys, they introduce me to a side of the world that's always been here, that what my body was designed for. So why not take the opportunity to utilize this thing and get the most out of it? You know, that's what I'm trying to do. And I, I, I certainly don't think everyone will make the choices that I have, but there is a definite, definite physiological, psychological, hormonal benefit to eating one step derived from as it's grown Let, or as it's, as it lived. Let's back up on that because I get a ton of people that, um, and I'm also somewhat of an asshole at times and maybe overly blunt, but I had a guy with plantar fasciitis. He's, he came over to the house. Yep. Should I get, should I get sheep feet? Should I get orthotics? I've done this. I've done that. I've done everything. And I'm like, yep. ah, did you lose 50 pounds off your ass? Cause that's probably why you got plantar fasciitis, right? It's not, you know, there's certain things that are band-aids that you have to have. Um, whatever that may be, you may have to take some pain pills for something, whatever, but the reality is, is diet probably solves, I don't know, 90% might be a stretch, but for example, inflammation of the joints, my knees hurt every day. Yep. Good God. I don't know. I've been taking whatever, all the different pills you take for it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, you're drinking four diet Cokes a day May and you're yep. eating processed carbs. So when you talk yep. about the, whether there's like the primal blueprint or whatever, I would just... If it came from the earth, you're doing pretty good. That's what you want to do. You yeah. know, and, and that, some people yeah. say don't eat grains. Yeah, well, fuck it. I'm, I, I eat brown rice occasionally. But when I cook steak, and you talked about this before, or, or fish or whatever, but um, I throw onions in it, I throw mushrooms in it, and I put olive oil or avocado oil when I cook it. Um, a lot of yeah. flavor in that, and I use Himalayan sea salt. Is it perfect? Yep. Thank you. Yeah, I, I could probably just eat the steak, but I fucking am also human, so I want some flavor to the damn thing. And I may throw um, a little bit of seasoning in there, you know, whatever, above Himalayan sea salt. Well, when people look at their everyday diet, and, and let's say you've probably been poor and you've had money and everything in between. You know how they say, hey, write down what you spent every day, and then you're like, god damn, no wonder I don't have any money. Yeah, write down yeah. what you eat every day and be like, well, fuck, no wonder I'm fat. Because there's so many yep. things, not just what you eat. But what's in what you eat? And so you talked about the Coke Zero. Luckily, I've been able to just cut cold turkey, you know, for 15, 20 years um, soda. 
But what I can't cut yep. is cookies, right? I like cookies. So Quest yep. bars or, or or the Onnit bars or whatever, are those perfect? Yep. No, but if it keeps me from eating, like you said, 15 fucking Oreos, it's it's better than eating the Oreos. And so you kind of have to find one. Um, when people try to go on this all-American diet on Monday and they've been eating like shit, you know, for 15 years, it's probably going to amount in failure usually. What I've yep. tried to tell people is gradually bridge, right? Gradually work their way to the optimal, because you're not going to probably be able to quit, but learning how to do it is just as important because most people have no fucking idea, including me, what cr- eating correctly is. I've had people, and you probably have too, hey, come over to my house, kind of look through my cupboards, and I'm like, throw it all away. What? Yeah. We've been eating healthy. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, you haven't. Uh, that is not healthy. Yeah, well, that's, that's one thing. That's one thing too that's really cautionary for like the average American consumer is marketing dominates the world. And if you can take something and and you know, like the BPA bottles, I said, you know, that's supposed to be so much healthier for babies to have a BPA bottle. Well, they added seven other compounds in there that are probably more carcinogenic than the BPA, but they only say BPA free, you know, or like this is organic. Well. It was grown organic, but then it went through 15 other processes that made it shitty again, you know, and, and you, you nailed the head or nailed it right on the head. These people that try to make these massive sweeping, like I'm going to revolutionize my life overnight. Well, you might be a hard ass. And I would say that if you put your mind to it, like you, Aaron, you're the type of person that could quit dipping, quit eating cookies and do all that if you made your mind up to do so. But what's more realistic for people is, hey, all right, I'm not going to eat fast food this week. I'm going to like take one step or, Hey, I'm going to walk 30 minutes a day. Just do that. Like have one victory for a week or two before you try to start adding other, other victories in. And I'm talking to the lowest form of listener, like the guy that is depressed. He's on the couch. He has no motivation. He hasn't done anything right as far as physicality in, in the last 10 years. That's where you start. You have to start the momentum train with one victory. You can't win it all. And, one of the things I talk about a lot is a plus one mentality and, and literally everything in, in our lives, is, it comes down to decisions. And like I said, when, when I was talking about the powerlifting aspect, you know, I, uh, I was making a thousand bad choices, right? Everything, every choice that I made was selfish and every choice that I made was, was for my own personal quote unquote benefit at the time. But those choices hurt people and they took me further away from people. And at the point that I put the pistol in my mouth, I really kind of had this clarifying thought that if a thousand or, you know, a thousand bad choices put me here, a thousand and one good choices can at least maybe get me back on track. So I try to tell people, don't let, don't think about your diet as three meals. Think about it as three choices. When each of those choices, when and what you eat at breakfast, like do you get to the drive through at McDonald's. I do that too, but don't, don't make that the staple. Have your eggs, have your toast, have your oatmeal or have your berries. That's, that's a plus one for the day. Lunch rolls around. Okay, I'm going to have a shake. That's a plus one instead of going out and eating burgers with the buddies at, at lunch. And then at dinner, like, make that another win. You've got three wins just in your meals. Or, you know, if you want to go one big win, don't buy anything from the store that you're not going to eat that's on your plan. You know, like, simplify your process so that success is imminent. Like, if you don't have things in the cabinet, you can't cook them. And that, that opens another door where the choice is, do I cook something or do I go get something at fast food? 
But if you really are committed to it, the choices start to become easier and they start to gain momentum and they start to compound. And for me, once I've made a certain choice enough times, it doesn't even become a choice. It just becomes a part of the process. And then I can make new and better choices in other areas. One of the things where people pitfall is they go out with their friends and they look at this menu and, oh, my God, they got, you know, they got pizza and they got Philly cheesesteak and they got burgers and they got this. Well, if my plan is an eight-ounce piece of red meat and a sweet potato and a salad, I tell the, the waitress or waiter specifically, hey, I need eight to ten ounces of steak, I need a potato or a sweet potato, and I need salad. I don't even open the menu because I'm opening myself to choices that I don't need to make. I'm telling the waiter exactly what I need, and then we'll figure it out in between there because sometimes it's like, well, you know, we have a butter, we have a Louisiana butter steak, or we have this or that. It's like, can you leave the butter off? There we go. You know, I I choose to stick to my program and I curb them to me rather than curbing myself to them. So you're adding kind of what you're you're talking about, because um, I'm a fat kid at heart, right? So that's the one thing I tell people is don't put um, don't uh, eat. temptation is the devil, right? So I have a problem with peanut butter, but we don't put that shit in the house or my wife hides it because I'll wake up in the middle of the night and have peanut butter on my knuckles the next morning. And that's just me, and I know that's me. I mean, she she was laughing. Yeah. I started taking gummies to try to help sleep, and they give you the munchies. I've never smoked weed in my life, right? So the munchies for me is probably a different level. Well, I woke up, they're um, on it like little bars, little squares, like two by two. One of them was stuck to yeah. my side. This wasn't 15 years ago. This was like a month and a half ago. I woke up, and I'm like, what is that? And it was a freaking on it bar. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Amy needs to hide these fuckers, right? Like, have the discipline. <laughs> I may not have the discipline to not eat them when they're around, but I've got the discipline to have someone hide them. Or my yeah. my snack. I like cheese string, you know. So yep. is cheese great? Eh, it's not bad. It's a hell of a lot better than eating, you know, what I mean, a half a jar of peanut butter. And so when you go to the gas station, when you might grab a Snickers, a lot of times I'll grab string cheese and a piece of jerky. And when that's what I, that's what I go to too. Well, and the pe- what you got to understand is it, it, it does become like wiping your ass. Rather than walking right in and grabbing the Snickers, pretty soon it's it's second nature. It's habit. You're grabbing something yep. better or raw almonds or, or whatever. And, uh, again, this isn't coming from a dude that's, you know, had the body of a Greek god. At one time I had a butt crack hanging out the front of my shirt. So you, you, you really need to, <laughs> to understand that you're not alone, right? You're, you're not the only one. And, and – if it took 15 years for you to get to be a fat fuck, it's not going to be 15 minutes to be skinny. It's going to take some hard well, work and, and, and dedication. It, and if it does, like that's one of the other things too. I would tell people, like if you look at my if you look at my Instagram, you'll see that I got a day count. It's, it's like at 8.93 or four right now. But um, June 1st of 2019, just a couple days prior to that, I had a conversation with my dad and his dad and his dad. I mean, his dad and his grandfather uh, both died at 73 on the same day. Um, So it's like we were having the conversation. You know, my dad's getting older, and I'm looking at him, and he's softened a little bit, so our relationship's a lot better, and my my heart is softened. And, you know, I I appreciate and value the time with my dad primarily because I know at 61 or 62 years old, if he's holding the same standard as his dad and his grandfather – I got 10 or 11 years left with this guy. So I've set a personal goal to be 75 years old. Like, 
I'm I'm mad as fuck about it. Like I want to be 75. Like that's the thing that drives me in the morning. So it's like, if that is my goal, if that is absolutely what I am committed to, and if I'm not full of shit, then it's an easy choice to pick those those healthier decisions or those those you know the beef jerky and the cheese over the Snickers bar. Like those things become easy. You're allowed to you're allowed to have whatever kind of indulgence you want. Like. I love beer. I love bourbon. I love weed. I love cakes. I love cookies. I love all the things that any listener is going to say like, man, this is my reason that I can't. This is the reason I can't. I still do them. I still do them on a weekly basis. I'm allowed to have those things because five or six days a week, I hold the line. And then on that day of indulgence, like my body has to do an extra demand. You know, it's like, well, you burn five or 600 calories in your normal workout, but you're going out for pizza with the family later. Okay. Let's try to get 800 to a thousand, you know, like at least quantify and earn what you're doing. Because if I had to sit down and I'm like, ah, you know, my body looks good. I killed an elk. I killed some whitetail this year. Goal accomplished. It's real easy this time of year to slip into Thanksgiving, Christmas and new years and wake up 15, 20 pounds heavier. And then you're in this vicious cycle of like, Am I really committed to the goal of being 75? Am I really full of shit when I say these things or I put myself out there on a, on a platform like this and say, hey, I want to live to 75? There's no guarantee. But that's the cool thing about anything worthwhile. Like, you're, you're probably one of the best hunters alive, and you're not guaranteed to get that animal. But you are I guarantee you that you will push yourself to the limit that if you don't, you can hold yourself pretty high and say, hey, I did every single thing that I could to be successful, you know, and there's a lot of hunters, myself included. That's why I failed at Chino. I did what I thought I had to do. After those, those trips of failure, I got closer and learned more and more and more. It, it also helped to have a rifle versus my bow. But at the same time, my preparation was different because I knew what I was up against instead of just going out there thinking, Oh, this is a place where you're going to see a hundred deer a day. It's a, it's a vast population. The genetics are huge. It's going to be a slam dunk. And, and sometimes you have to fail just so you can learn. And um, so that's what I tell people when I work with them as a client. You know, we get real serious about what your goals are and why. Like, why are you doing this? Well, I want to look good for my husband. Well, fuck that. Like, that's probably <laughs> the secondary outcome. Like, you, if you want to look good for your husband, like, you got to own this for yourself. Because if you're doing things for someone else and you and you feels like you're falling short or you don't get there, you're just going to immediately have resentment resentment for your husband because you're doing all these things you don't want to for them you have to really define your goals and define your outlook for yourself and then i guarantee you those things will benefit the people around you because you'll be a better version a better happy version of yourself and you know it's not really a sacrifice to feel the way that i do because once a week you know i have the pizza or i have the burger or i have you know a fried piece of chicken or, or eat my nana's cooking or whatever it is you know, it's not like this imprisoned lifestyle. Bodybuilding can certainly be that way. Powerlifting was certainly that way. But I'm just trying to be a normal guy that trains hard every day, that looks pretty good in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt, you know, and, and doesn't and – my, and my blood markers indicate the same. Like, okay, that's a healthy-looking guy. Well, what's my blood work say? Oh, he is a healthy-looking guy. I know a ton of guys that are string beans that smoke cigarettes like two packs a day and drink a bottle of whiskey throughout the day. Like, they're not healthy. They're not fat, but they're not healthy. So I'm trying to go full spectrum blood work, you know, uh, nutritionally, sleep. I, I monitor my sleep via an aura ring. 
um, and, and also my watch. I get a lot of feedback on that stuff. And it's not like I'm having these sweeping changes based on a day-to-day thing, but I look at my months like, okay, I had a good month. I gained three pounds. 1.2 of that was muscle. 1.8 of it was fat. All right, this next month, let's kick it up a notch. Like, and I just, I'm a competitive person. So I play games with myself. Like I talk shit to myself all the time. Like you bitch, you can't, you can't push out now. Like, here you are and you're just going to stop here at McDonald's and then I'll drive an extra five miles and I'll find the gas station that's got, you know, the right jerky for me. Or the, I like old trapper jerky. That's the one that I rely on because the bags are big and they're good same, as fuck. Same thing. So, yep. <laughs> you know, it, it, I'm just a competitive asshole and sometimes I have to turn that competitiveness inward with myself because I'm human, dude. My mom, my mom cooks like the baddest cakes in the world. She makes amazing cakes. Well, Sunday dinner rolls around and that's not my day to eat cake i gotta look there and smell that thing now i'll take a piece home for monday or tuesday when my day is programmed but it's all it's all within reason like if i wanted to have that piece of cake i'd have it but monday's workout would be it'd be an ass kicker for sure you know yeah and i mean i think kind of adding to that like when you talked about you know the hunting side of things um people ask scotty a guy that i that i guide for and they'll they'll ask you know at the risk of sound like a total douche they'll say how what you know what what makes him able to do what he does and scotty's like yeah he's fit yes yes he knows animals but the number one thing is he he does not give up right he he literally um at at times do things that um you know and i've been giving shit about it and it sounds like you are fucked up the same way um tunnel vision i mean a psychotic uh i i fucking hate to fail and so has that put me at physical jeopardy at times Yes, it probably it probably has. But the the thing for me is when people ask about certain things like this, I'm like, you know, the easiest way to to look at this is do I want to be the guy that's the last in line when we're hiking up a mountain or do I want to have the opportunity to shoot an elk or a deer, but my physical fitness is what let me down or am I the yeah. guy, you know, or my shooting or animal behavior and knowledge? I mean, it's a total package. And so I mean, and I am no motivational speaker, but uh, Mackenzie sitting here beside me, you've walked in the office and I've been doing push-ups on a, a ball, I think. Yes, often. Um, well, I'm sitting my fat ass at, at the desk. There's a floor there. Well, fuck, how hard is it to do 50 push-ups? And so yep. baby steps, right? So I'll do push-ups or air squats. And then, you know, you want to be constant. And it sounds like you're wired the same way. I want to learn archery, building arrows, tuning, the human body, dieting, animal behavior, how to score them, reading topography, land navigation. I mean, at no time, I'm sure anybody ever die and be like, God damn it, I learned too much, right? I mean, you can always make yourself better. You know what kicked my ass? I went to Arlington National Cemetery, right? And I mean, you're talking about some hallowed grounds. I mean, at least at least I think it is, and it it is. I don't give a fuck if you think it's not, it is. You get goosebumps Um, going there, yeah. You know, like... I went in there and uh, I'm looking at some of these these tombstones and you see these guys, you know, 32 years old. He, you know, he, he was a graduate of the Citadel. Uh, he was a, you know, he was a commander in, in, in the Navy or whatever it was. Like, there's just these, like, long lists of, of achievements and accomplishments and successes. And it's like, man, we used to glorify achievement. You know, we used to glorify heroes. We don't we don't celebrate our heroes anymore, and I think that's kind of wept into the psychology of of the average person. I'm not talking about guys like you, but the average person. You don't have to really be great to be comfortable. 
you know, and, and for me, I've been really comfortable. I've lived in a house that I shouldn't have been able to afford. I've had things that I don't really think I deserved because I could do something really well, but it didn't account for the rest of my life. Like I was a piece of shit in a lot of other ways, but now I want to be the best version of this body and this life that I can, that I can exude from this. You know, like I want to extract as much out of myself as I possibly can because, you know, like my truck, it's got 340 something thousand miles on it, you know, and I literally want to drive it till it blows apart because I don't want to just go buy something because I can. I don't want to just have the best bow because I can. I don't want to just kill big animals because I know the right people. Like I legitimately want to be able to stand on my own. And if the world blew apart tomorrow, I have the skills and the qualifications to do the things that I love to do because I put in the work to do them. I don't want to be some guy that just slides by, you know, and I, and I feel very lucky and I feel very fortunate that I'm in the circles that I'm in, but I also kind of have stepped back from some of that because when I, when things get a little bit easy for me, as I told you last night, when we were talking, I, I try to look for something to keep it hard. You know what I mean? Like I want, I want angles that challenge me constantly because I don't want to be the guy that sits down and thinks I've made it. I never want to feel like I've made it because you know, as well as I do, the biggest mule deer in the place is just a bad day away from a, from a mountain lion, you know? And I kind of like that aspect about the wild. And I try to implement that into myself. Like if I get comfortable again, well, I'm just setting myself up for some kind of failure, you know? So I like to wake up early. I like to get my workout done. I like to challenge myself to, Hey, you did a workout early and it was easy. So go, go back and do something else. Can you run up that mountain in 20 minutes? Can you get to that stop sign in 10 minutes from here to walking? Like, I mean, I am that that idiot in the meme that's like, you know, there's a car at a stoplight and the dude's running on the sidewalk and it's like, if I don't make it to that stop sign before the car, I'm dead. Like, I talk that shit to myself all the time. Anything that I can do to create a competitive environment within myself, dude, it just, it, it's fun for me at this point. It's hard, but it's fun. You know, and it's funny, and, uh, talk, talking about that, even hiking up a mountain, uh, obviously there's some of our DNA crisscrossing because I'll look at a... You know, 75-pound pack, 60-pound pack, whatever, and I'll look climbing up a steep grade, and I'll see a, a boulder at 100 yards. I'll be like, make it to the boulder, you get a break. And for some fucking reason, yeah. I'll get to the boulder and be like, you can go 15 farther, you fucking little bitch. And I have always yeah. been <laughs> yeah. that. Now, I may pass the fuck out in the next 15 yards, but I think that that's what will help separate people from – you know, mediocrity to, to, you know, being on a higher level is you have to keep challenging yourself. Now I've had people say that, well, why don't you run marathons? I'm like, cause I don't fucking want to, I'm not going to do shit right. that I hate. Right. I got to have some enjoyment in it. But I, I think that if people look at things that way, you know, f you know, where failure is not an option, that doesn't mean I don't fail. Um, you're probably going to be a lot more successful rather than when you hike into an area and you're already getting your ass kicked. You're already thinking, what if I don't see elk? And what if I don't do that? Um, you know, I've had guys, I've definitely been accused of being um, arrogant or overconfident. And I'm like, I'm not overconfident. I, I mean, or I'm not arrogant. I just, we see a deer from a mile and a half away and it beds down. The first thing I'm thinking is that deer's going to die. If I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to end up blowing this stock. Well, why the fuck am I even on the mountain? Now, I will well, definitely blow the stock. Too. It's like the only deer you can kill is the one you can see. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you can sit here and, and say, well, there might be one that walks out at 200 yards and 
and, and just shows himself broadside and lays down, I mean, that's, that's a possibility. But like with, with the kind of hunting that you do, and I'm, I'm way over inferring here because I've only been in a handful of situations like this. But, you know, when I killed the bull that was, that ended up being just a, a fantastic bull, um, we were actually just trying to position ourselves on probably a 280 inch, 300 inch, which is phenomenal. Like I'm not trying to make light of that five by six, you know, so we were already working towards the elk that we could see. We just had a presentation on a, on a bigger elk than that. Um, but that's the thing is like, you know, I will never be a guy that will turn down an opportunity at a rep. You know what I mean? The worst thing that can happen, um, would be failure. You know, and what's that really mean? Well, it can mean a lot of things in the outdoors, but when it's just an open plains field and there's a there's a mule deer behind a juniper, well, let's figure out how close we can get. Let's see what we can do. Let's make the stalk. And I say that with, with only failures on my belt at this point, but I've gotten reps that I wouldn't have gotten if we hadn't tried. You know, and, and that's the most important thing. And, and one thing I do want to tell people too, you know, so Jocko's a guy that's like 430 you know, 4.30 or 4.30, and you listen to these guys, you got to be up at 5 a.m. Well, I did that for two years, and my discipline was only one-sided because I would get up at 4.30, but I wasn't telling myself to go to bed. I was still going to bed at like 11 or 12, and that four hours, you know, I did it for a year, but it killed me. So analyze your discipline and give yourself a model for success. So like right now, I tend to be more of like a night owl kind of person. I like to be up till... 10.30, 11.30 kind of thing, but I like to sleep eight hours. So I give myself, hey, get up at 6.30 or 7 o'clock. You know, I, I don't try to live that 4.30 lifestyle because my body and just me personally, I prefer going to bed at like 11 o'clock. So if I get up at 7.30, or I mean 7 o'clock or 6.30, I've gotten my seven and a half hours of sleep, you know, and I feel good and, I, and that sets my body up to really like, be functioning at its best. So when you see people's discipline and you see people succeed, I do encourage emulation for a while, but you've also got to take those steps to figure out what's working for you. Because at some point, if it's not what you're about, like, like I said, I'm more of a night owl than I am a morning person. I like being up early, but within reason, um, you're just going to fall apart and fail. Like I did, you know, I was like, I can't keep, I can't get up at four 30. I can't fucking do it. You know, I'm too tired. Well, it's like, well, why don't you just sleep two more hours and see how you feel? And guess what? 6.30 and 7 o'clock seems to work out perfectly for me. I still get the workouts done. I still get my journaling done. I still get my meals eaten and prepped and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of was almost beating myself up and taking myself further away from the goal by trying to hold Jocko's or David Goggins' level of standard. Or like somebody that's listening to this and says, man, I got to run a half marathon like Cam Haynes. Well, you better put on some fucking uh, bootstraps because Cam Haynes has been doing that for years and years and years. Start out by walking a mile or two. Like, just get successful in grades and keep building and find out what works for you. Because like you, I've run, I did the shit. I ran half marathons and marathons because I thought, well, if Cam does that and that makes him a successful hunter, that's what I have to do. But when I stepped back and was like, man, I just hate fucking running. And I realized that I like rowing and I like riding a bike and I like hiking mountains. Well, those three things got me in as good a shape as running did because I dreaded running. When you're excited about something, you do it at a different level and your body responds at a different level. You're not, you're not getting these like, oh my God, I got to go further. I got to go one more step. I can't do anymore. I can't do anymore. It's actually like, no, I'm going further. I'm going one step further than I did yesterday. I'm going one second faster than I did yesterday. You know, build your ecosystem for success. That's what I try to do. 
No, you're right. And I'm, it would take a very large man with a very large gun to make me run anywhere. I hate running. And, you know, I, I tell people the same thing you just said all the time. Like, I'm not going to run. I just, I don't want to do it. And, and, and whether it's endorphins or whatever, but there at no time when I'm running, am I going to say, wow, you know what? I just, I'm going to take 10 seconds off my time. It's like, fuck that. I'm quitting 10 seconds early. Cause I hate this shit where I get on a mountain bike or a backpack. Um, my, my wife and I have a game. She, she'll carry like 20 pounds and I'll carry like 50 or 60 and I'll kick her out of the car five minutes or 10 minutes before me. And then the goal is for yep. me to catch her and pass her. So that's giving her, because she's Italian and hates to lose, um, motivation t- for me to not catch her. And that's giving me motivation. You know, not that I give a shit about beating my wife. It's just that that is the goal, because she and I train together. Or when we're in group yeah. cardio or whatever. But let's say you're not great at doing backpack cardio. It's something you have to do. But if you're going to be beating yourself up all the time because you're not the leader of the pack well do that know where your role know where you're at do your best but maybe like you said mountain biking rowing that godforsaken peloton bike i mean do something that is going to make you want to keep doing it rather than yeah if i went running with a bunch of runners i'd be like hey can we do some you know uh jujitsu before we take off so i have a fucking chance because it's just not my thing where put weight on my back i want to do that and that's another thing. Dieting's the same way. Everything else, you do have to set yourself up for success and not not failure. And by no like, there there's not one time in my life am I ever going to be picked to be the on a running team. But uh, backpacking, yeah. Um, and that's just just how it is. And and hopefully people listening into this, if you're, I always bring up pipe fitters and electricians, or or you're stuck at a desk as an IT guy, you, you know. I, I get that, and I've been there, not the IT guy part, but the construction, you, you know, setting it, you just said it, sleeping, maybe you're not going to work out in the morning. Every article you may read in men's health and fitness and whatever bullshit says to work out in the morning, well, if your workouts suck in the fucking morning, don't work out in the morning. Come home from yep. your job, eat a little bit, take a snack, and then hit the gym then. You've got to set yourself up for what's going to be best for you, and it sounds like you, you're you're agreeing with that, so... Oh, 100%. And I mean, you know, it's like, you know, I, I don't know the work environment at Kafaru, but like, I imagine that you want to have happy employees because happy employees that come into a place where they feel like they're respected, they feel like they're valued, they feel like they're understood, they're going to work harder for you, much in the same way that I mentioned for Bert. You know, like, I don't think there's another person inside Sornex that understands me better than Bert. And that's one, because he's one of my best friends in this world, but also, that creates an environment where it's like, I would die for that dude. Like that dude gave me a shot when nobody else would. And he's understood me. He's kind of let me go and, and kind of given me a long rope. And he's like, you're probably going to hang yourself at some point, but there's always the respect factor that I don't want to hang myself because I don't want to let this guy down. So, you know, you want to create an environment for sex success and you want to create an environment where, you know, it's easy to do the things that you do. It's not, it shouldn't be a challenge to go to the gym. If you hate going to the gym, I would challenge you to go outside and walk. See, cause that was for me after my injury, I had a real love hate relationship with the gym. Um, I felt like I was, I had to do it because that's what I'd always done, but it wasn't until I started hiking that I was able to detach myself from the idea that I could only be strong or only be fit if I went to a gym, you know, and then I started training outside at my house. I got some, some weights and kettlebells and, that kind of stuff for 
outside of my house, you know, and then it was like, well, I can get up in the morning and train and actually enjoy it because I'm not getting in my car. I'm not driving 20 minutes to the gym. I'm not going inside. I'm actually training out here and the sun's coming up and the birds are singing and the leaves are falling. And, I'm, uh, you know, it just felt after the hiking, I started seeking those things. So the early mornings became a little bit more desirable because, hey, I want to see the sunrise. Hey, I want to train with the birds singing. I want to do these things. So don't don't marry yourself to what you're doing now is what you'll always be doing. I would tell anyone to like constantly self-assess and recalibrate. You know, it's just like you. If you get out in the woods and you go around a bend thinking it's going to take you closer to your destination, you have to make a point at some time. It's like, well, it's taking me further but it's an easier path to get there. Sometimes you just have to blaze a trail back through. And that's what I do is I'm always open to change. A lot of times you'll see, like I will go through stages in a year where I'll, I'll have an inclination to run and I'll go run for two or three months. But as soon as I don't want to run anymore, I have something else waiting. That's probably been kind of like stoking the fire a little bit. Like, Hey, you need to get back on that rower and see if you can set some PRs or do you need to go hike the mountain every morning for two months or whatever it is. I mean, I, I don't marry myself to anything so much as even with the program that I do, like, you know, if somebody says do four sets of tricep push downs, well, why do I have to do four sets of the same thing? Can I bounce around and do four just tricep exercises for one set each? Like it does it's not like my tricep knows that it's getting stimulation from a, from a rope pull down, you know? So I just, you know, I just want to put forth effort. Yeah, you know just, what I'm saying? Like I, everything that you're saying especially with the way my brain works like i hate the rower but i love the rower um my ass goes numb if i do it too long i'm probably doing it wrong but it makes me extremely winded and so what i do is like a minute of the rower at high as high intensity as i can because i love doing push-ups and so then i go off the rower and i knock out 50 push-ups and then i hop back on the rower and i do a minute or two and because indoor cardio for me sucks. And then I have, um, we call it the ex-wife, but it's, um, a hit mill X and I do, um, it's, it's a treadmill. I hop on that for five minutes. So am I doing the standard stereotypical, Hey, you have to do 20 minutes of cardio. Yes, but I'm not doing it on one machine because I mentally hate it. And so I'm the same way. I've got, I've got terrible ADD. Like, and I I know a lot of people say that, but like, I am just all over the place. I got, I got 17 trains of thought going all the time. So, you know, I get distracted, I get bored, I get, you know, kind of frustrated with something. And, and like, exactly like you're saying, if I'm on the roller for a minute, you know, I'll, I'll hop off and I'll do five or 10 pull-ups. Then I'll drop down and do TRX rows. And then I'll do 15 push-ups and I'll get back on again. But then there's other times where it's like, I love to hate something. So I did a hundred thousand meter row. Oh, um, Jesus down at Sornex HQ in one day. <laughs> I wanted to see if I could do it for 100,000 meters in a day. And I uh, set myself up for 24 hours. Actually, the first marathon I ever did, I was going to go run 13.1 miles for a half. And about 10 steps into it, I was like, what kind of bitch starts something with half in the title? <laughs> so I was like, there's no fucking way I'm going to do 13 miles. I'm going all the way. Well, at like 18, 19 miles in, I called my coach, my, my middle school soccer coach. I called him up and I was like, dude, I'm getting ready to call an Uber. I fucking messed up. And he goes, what happened, bro? And, uh, I said, well, I started to run a half marathon, which I did pretty good and did that, but I'm at mile 18 and I, I don't feel like I can go anymore. And I heard 
like I heard a sound in the background. And I was like, what's that? He's like, you're in luck. I got a 10 mile run this morning. Let's go. So he got, he stayed with me on the phone and we finished that eight miles. And, you know, sometimes that's one of those moments. I called him specifically because he's always been a guy that challenged me to get more out of myself and really probably the person that helped shape my psychology to be an athlete. So I don't know if he was going to run or not, but he's, he's sure as hell, like that's the kind of people I need in my life. Somebody that'll run with you. And he's in fucking California, you know, and I'm in Kentucky on a phone call with this guy and he's still kicking my ass to get better. So I'm not, I'm not this person that's just like, I'm not a David Goggins or a Cam Haynes type, you know, I, I fucking struggle, um, you know, with, with still completing the things, but I care more about the things in the future and I care more about my goals than I feel the pain, you know, and that's what's always gotten me through is like, I will endure anything if there's something that I want. I mean, like I said, dude, I was driving four trips a week, six hours in a car at two o'clock in the morning, just so I could go lift weights, you know, and I had a fucking great gym five miles away, but this was the best gym. And one of the things that I love that Louie said that's so, so important, because people love known destinations. He was like, if I told you there might be a million dollars out there in the parking lot under one of 10 million cones, how many cones would you flip over? I was like, I don't know. He's like, you'd get tired. You'd want to quit. He's like, but if I said there's a 10 million cones out there or a hundred million cones out there and under one of them is a million dollars, how many would you flip over? He's like, you turn over every one. He's like, destinations are easy. That's what sells programs. That's what sells lifestyles. People think they want that destination but most people don't want to see how the sausage is made. And, uh, you know, that's the truth. Like, but I like the sausage. I like to get my hands dirty. I like to do the hard things. And I I constantly tell myself when it gets hard, like nobody else would do this. Nobody would have 19 knee surgeries and feel the shit you feel. You just have to, you have to pep talk yourself in equal proportion to how much you shit talk yourself. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I mean, hopefully the people listening in are at least grasping you know, some of this. And, and, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, my, my background, um, kind of going up and down from skinny kid, fat kid, uh, powerlifting kind of, but you know, bow hunter, the human mind and body are capable of amazing things. It's the problem is, is the mind is generally what's failing people, whether it be diet or, or exercise or nutrition and everything like you're talking about. Um, you know, the hope when we do these podcasts and I get someone on like yourself is you've run the gambit of everything, right? You've been giant, you've been fucked up, broken, you know, whatever, poor, rich, you know, neglected your family, which I am extremely guilty of as well. But I, you know, whatever motivational t-shirts you see or whatever, failure is the best motivator. I'm a firm believer in that because everything that I've failed that I've learned a lot and tried to, to make myself better, whether it be a mule deer stock or, or family, um, you know, but you can, you, you can certainly help yourself by, um, making yourself better before you fail or before you fail or make the failures a little less tragic. Um, and and, you know, I I think that that's something to think about for anybody. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, and this is a dangerous statement because I don't want it to sound braggish, but there's nothing that I've really ever truly cared about and poured myself into that I failed at, you know, anything that I've really ever truly to my core wanted, I've achieved. And, and sometimes I wish that was more money, <laughs> you know, like sometimes I wish I cared about making more money, but, uh, cause I, you know, I put myself in situations even now 
because I, I chase the experience. I chase the, the dreams that I have relentlessly because that's all I've got. I mean, I, I really don't, I don't have a lot more than that. And I've always been that way as a kid, you know, just from the time I was small, like the first thing I told my teacher in school that I wanted to be when I grew up was great. I didn't even, I didn't even know what I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to be great at something. And, uh, you know, I've always, I've always had a disproportionate belief in myself. Like I'm the only thing I got that's going to get me out of whatever I'm in. So figure it out. And, and that served me well. And it's, it's, served me poorly at times too because there's a lot of times where I realize that I need help and I'm, I'm more willing to ask for those things on the front end of something so I don't get myself in a bad situation so if somebody out there is like listen to this and thinking well I can't do that or I you know I don't care enough about myself to do it find somebody that you care enough about to do it for your kids your wife your mom your dad something and, and tie it to that but then also on the other end I, I tried for too long to do shit on my own because I thought you had to be this lone wolf, self-made, you know, hard ass. And in reality, the more I've asked for help, the more gracious I've found people are. And, and like Chino and those guys and, and yourself, man, like it's just amazing which, what happens when you just respect somebody's capabilities. You don't try to pretend like you're better than you are and you're humble and you, and you ask the right questions and you, you learn. Like I, I will learn, I learn more from your podcast driving across country and back. I mean, I, I told you, I listened to one book that was six and a half hours long. And then I listened to 46 hours of this podcast, specifically yours talking about your hunts and stuff like that. Um, I, I listened to, uh, and, and guys too, that I like Levi and those guys listen to their podcast, like them on your podcast, because they're successful at what I'm trying to become successful at. You know, it's what a, what a better thing to go into a hunt then listen to fucking savages talking about what they do at a high level and giving you real life perspective on, Oh yeah, I shot over this animal's back or, Oh, you know, I clipped this animal on the leg and you know, it, it, it sucked. So it, it, it real it brings reality into, into view. It's like, this is going to be hard. These are the best guys in the world talking about something that they are very successful at and it's still hard. So don't go out of here thinking you're going to be this guy that just slam dunks this thing and gets an animal and holds the grab and grin. Like, it's not about that for me at all. It's, it's truly about trying to become a better man. I even put a post up this morning, like the hunt was successful in that I got an animal, but I'm still on the hunt to become the best version of myself that I can be like as a man, as a, as a soul, but also as a physical presence, as a brutal presence. When I grapple as a, as a composed presence, when I'm shooting an animal or when I'm shooting in my target, like, I want to be, I want to be as diverse and multifaceted and talented in as many directions as I can possibly be. And I don't believe that's an impossible measure. I think once you learn your process, how to, how to develop the process of success in one area, that bleeds over into all the other areas. The only thing that I'm doing right now is if somebody opens a door for me and I like, like I said, you know, you're one of the best hunters in the world. So when you open a door to me, whether that's offered me advice or offered me, you know, a story, like, why would I, why would I not take that to heart and like soak up as much of that as I can? I'm not, I'm not trying to, to make myself bigger, better, whatever for, for the public view. I want to be able to tell you one day, Hey man, I was successful in this way, or I was able to complete this talk because of this and, and let you know that what you're doing matters. Let you know that what you're doing for the community at large. And really, I think for, for men at large, because 
you know, you, you talk about things in a way that, that a lot of men don't anymore. You know, a lot of guys have to hide behind company names or they have to hide behind sponsorships and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm kind of kissing your ass here, but it, it is a real important thing that you're doing. And uh, it's definitely impacted me. But if, if what I've said today impacts anyone in any way, reach out. Like, I'm a, I'm a perpetual failure, but I refuse to quit. And that's, that's probably been my greatest gift is that I'm stubborn as a bull. You know, I, I just do whatever I can to do a little bit better than I have before. Now, and man, that's definitely um, solid advice. And I think what, you know, I think, well, this is one of the, you know, not pumping your tires too much, but this is definitely one of the, probably my favorite podcast I've done so far. Cause one somewhat similar backgrounds, obviously you're much higher level when you're lifting, but kind of the roller coaster up and down and same with failures in life. I mean, when, when I've fuck, I've been married four times, right? I mean, I've gained and lost a lot of money and lived in poverty for quite some time. And you just keep moving forward and try not to do the same thing twice that was ignorant and try yeah. to do the smart things more than once. And, uh, I, I think like you had said on social media, a lot of people fake the funk. Um, you see the highlights of their life another none of the the, the pitfalls and downfalls and the failures. And that, that is one thing I try to make sure and tell people is the failures. Like, you know, I, I have a temper and I've talked about how I'm working on that and I haven't paid my taxes at times. And I talk about that because people that act like they never do anything wrong are full of shit. Um, every, no one's a hundred dollar bill. Everybody fucks up. Nobody just ever wants to talk about it. And if someone like you or, or me or someone else well-known talks about those failures, it's more relatable and it helps people. I, I think it helps people a lot because they're like, well, fuck those guys. They fucked up all kinds of stuff. I'm not the only one and they got better. So, Yeah, man. I think if you were to look at the track record, I'm still a loser. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if, if you were to lay it all out, even though I've had some, some pretty, pretty high flying moments, you know, it, it's, I think any winner or any person of success would tell you the same. Like, I don't know too many people with horseshoes up their asses that win all the time. You know, it may look like it, but I guarantee you if somebody's really, really great at something, they've paid their dues somewhere. No, for, for sure. I, one of the things that's funny, Scotty and I, he's basically my brother, the guy that I, I guide for, we hunt together. Um, I, 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 I shot an owl dad at four or five feet or yards. It was super close. And yep. people were going on and on. And I, Scotty and I were talking, I'm like, Scotty's like, yep. Little do they know you missed 11 times that fucking day and walked 49,000 steps. And I said, oh, no, we're going to do a podcast and talked about it because people only see the highlight. They don't see how much I screwed up. And it's important. People know that there was a lot of screw ups to get to that point. And like you talked about the track record, you know, you take a left is a bad decision. A right's a good one. I'm trying to get where yep. I've taken more rights before I die. I can't say that I'm 50-50 yep. right now, but I'm working real hard at it. So, <laughs> Well, dude, you know, and that's the thing. I had a conversation with a guy. He's, he's a blue check guy. He's a well-known guy, and he's getting into hunting. And he approached me in, in a very honest and, like, sincere way, like complimenting me on, on the season I'm having, which by any standard, dude, I, I've been very, very blessed this season. And I don't say that just like as a, you know, as a hunting cliche. I, I really do feel like a lot of things have changed within me as a man, but also my outlook in the woods and how I approach things. So I really feel fortunate for it. But, you know, he, he assumed that I was a little bit better of a hunter than I am. And I told him, he's like, dude, you're on fire. You don't miss. And he, he kind of indulged it. He had missed a shot on a really good buck. And he'd never hunted from a tree stand. So he aimed high on it and he sailed it. And, uh, you know, we talked about that. But then I just told him, 
before I killed an axis in Hawaii on Molokai, I missed three axis deer. You know, and I, I take pride in shooting, and I shoot a lot, and I try to shoot really well. And, uh, you know, I missed three deer. One, because those fuckers never, ever once stopped to even, I don't know if they ever drank or ate the whole time we were there, just like they were in full-blown run the whole time. But I eventually was able to get it done, and I can I can remember having those feelings of, like, I, I'm just not good enough for this. I'm just not cut out for this. But I went and shot my bow and kind of proved to myself, okay, you're hitting your target just maybe you're just too excited when they're moving or when they're coming at you or whatever, like just resettle yourself and calm down. And I went back out there with like not full confidence, but at least more than I had after that morning. And I killed that afternoon, you know? So it's, uh, sometimes you just have to stop yourself in motion and, and realize where you are. Like you can keep walking the wrong direction or you can stop and look at your compass. And that's what I try to do when I feel like I'm getting too far away from something or I'm getting in deep water. I'm willing to admit that I can't go much more, much further on my own. So I either recalibrate and go a little bit back further the other direction or I reach out for help now. Oh, no, no, for sure. Well, man, we're hitting over two hours, so uh, you probably got shit to do. And I, I know I've missed about 95 phone calls. Um, Man, I'm going to definitely have to get you back on again because I'm sure I'm going to get a million comments. This has been a, a really good podcast. Dude, I can't thank you enough for, for hopping on here. But well, I mean, I appreciate that, and I'm sure everybody uh, listening in does. So, uh, well, again, thanks for coming on and what what you're doing in the industry. Tell tell Bert I said hello and thank him as well for everything. And uh, yeah, man, let's stay in touch, do some hunts together, and uh, you know, have some fun. Uh, that sounds great, man. It'd be an honor. All right, take it easy. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye bye.